I don't know about the ratings numbers, but if I was a asshole internet troll, I would be focusing on Star Wars because that's the biggest cultural thing there is in the world right now. Whereas picking on Doctor Who is like being a sports writer and your team that you pick on is like a single A minor league team in Canada. As a Star Wars fan, I'll gladly accept that backhanded compliment. Thank you, Matt. So as always, thank you for joining me. Enjoy the podcast. Kick back and relax. The force is strong and is with us always. And never forget. We have hope. Rebellions are built on hope. They have no idea we're coming. Take hold of this moment. The force is strong. Make ten men feel like a hundred. Take the next chance. And the next time. You're rebels, aren't you? You called it Jesse James. Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. Oh, The Bizzle, thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, ladies and gentlemen of The Bizzlecast, welcome to the final Bizzlecast of 2018. A great year for The Bizzlecast, even while the world burns, uh, and it's fitting to have on one of my original podcasters and a guy who's been super loyal and interesting having on over the year. Uh, Matty G, of course, is who I'm talking about. Matt, I, I don't think senior contributor works anymore how do you feel about contributor emeritus to the podcast and welcome uh thank you very much glad to be here emeritus sounds cool uh but it also makes me sound old Old, and you're technically older than me (laughs) so i don't know about that so uh we'll we'll call it contributor rank to be named later or something like that There you go. There you go. Um, Okay. Well, it's great to have you on. And Matt also uh, suggested the topic tonight. Um, Now, guys, back in 2015, when I was first starting, I did a pretty extensive end of the year best of film list. Um, And I don't think I've done that again for the last couple of years for various reasons, or at least not on mine. Last year, I did one for Alistair's podcast from NovaStream in Australia. This year, I did want to do something, Matt, so I'm glad you contacted me. But it's different in more interesting in a lot of ways than just a list of movies, especially because the, the movie situation, as we'll discuss, is uh, interesting to say the least. So we're ta- we're calling this uh, our favorite moments of, of, of nerddom, nerdiness in, in 2018. Sure. But Matt, explain a little bit about what we mean when we say f- uh, favorite um, in this particular context for the listeners. Yeah, sure. So uh, this is sort of our version of a top 10. It's purely subjective. It's Whatever we experience that we think broadly fits into this category of nerd pop culture, geek culture, whatever you want to call it, Uh, this can be movies, TV show, video games, comics, uh, streaming content, online content, whatever falls broadly into this world that really we really enjoyed this year. Uh, you know, this is going to be a little bit more positive than sometimes I can get. I know like, uh, we all remember my rants against things like Gotham and iron fist season one. We're probably not going to go down that territory. This is Mm -hmm. some of the stuff we like the most. It's not objective at all. I'm sure there's some big things we're going to leave out. I don't think either of us, for instance, are going to talk about Aquaman. Um, no, 
so, you know, these were just things that we experienced that we did this year that uh, really were cool things that we're going to remember and, and things that stood out. If DC in general comes up, I might have a few thoughts, but I, I'm, not, I'm not Aquaman. And so, um, again, guys, uh, so I'm going to throw this back to Matt after I set it up. So we were trying to figure out how to do it. We thought five each uh, plus a couple honorable mentions would work. But since we inevitable, inevitably will have some crossovers, Matt, even if we disagree or there are different aspects of the thing, um, I thought it would make more sense for you to, to lead and go first uh, in most cases and then for me to sort of match my list towards you so we're not you know met talking at minute 15 about one thing and then minute 49 i come back to it again to the exact just, same thing yeah um, yeah no i like that you would like that so i think sure. this is going to be one of these like show don't tell podcasts and this will make more sense as we go along but this is as method all things in nerd culture that we that we liked or found significant or interesting or whatever um matt you know me um nostradamus wannabe i'm sure a couple predictions will will pop up here or there although i have some to admit wrong ones as well it has <laughs> being the end of the year you know it's time to, to look back and and uh, take account of everything so again man it's great to have have you on and before we lead into the list um i guess we'll start with some honorable mentions anything else you want to uh say the bizzle guys you doing you, you doing well yeah very much so awesome. uh looking forward to the end of the year awesome so um, i'm gonna let you be sort of the host here for a little bit so how, how do you want to structure it in terms of do you want to do uh, like uh, all of your honorable mentions um uh, and then sure I'll, i only throw- had one. Oh, okay um, so I, i'll throw it out there uh my honorable mention is Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. It is amazing. The only reason it's not on my top five is we are recording Wednesday night and I saw it on Monday and simply put, I haven't had enough time to really think about kind of what I think about this movie. I haven't had a chance to really think about it in the context of 2018, but it is really, really funny. It is extremely well-written. It looks like a comic book brought to life. It's got huge amounts of the pop art and psychedelic art style that Steve Ditko brought to all of his comics in the 60s. It's got some very moving stuff in regards to Stan Lee, who unfortunately passed away very recently. Rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace. It's got a great female character spider gwen uh one of the best female superheroes that's been brought to life so to speak in in one of these movies Uh, i think they've already greenlit more for her if not they really should it's the coolest costume it's a great performance it's your girl Hailey steinfeld yeah i uh, I haven't seen two big movies in theaters and i've seen neither i'm seeing both of them this week i can't wait for spider verse um and i'm literally only seeing bumblebee because of her and travis knight who directed kubo and the two strings which is a movie that i love and Oh yeah, Kubo's fantastic. And the fact that Bumblebee has like a 93% or whatever it is, is is impressive. But Spider-Verse, I'm really, really pumped about seeing. No one in my family wants to see it, so that's going to be maybe a solo movie, like Saturday afternoon or something. Um, But yeah, just to get it out now, Matt, of all my predictions of the last two years, my Haley Steinfeld drum beating is finally uh, Uh. coming to fruition. And let me ask you really quickly, without spoilers, and again, as someone who hasn't seen the movie, um, you know, being great on screen as, you know, in person, 
person versus voice actor, it doesn't always translate to the same thing. There's amazing voice actors who barely appear on screen, and then there's you know guys uh, who, who and women who do both. Um, and I know you haven't been tracking her career uh, it, nearly like I have with Haley Steinfeld, but like using her as an example, like what makes it an actress like her great as a voice actress in a movie like that, or is this so different because the movie's so different, so you can't really compare? Well, the movie is very different. Mm-hmm. It helps that she has a really good script. This is a, you know, even as funny as this movie is, there's a, there's a heart to it and there's thoughtfulness put into the writing. Uh, you know, and she's able to affect the personality that they wanted Gwen Stacy to have. And, well, I'm not going to go into more detail because there's things I don't want to spoil. Uh, but if you know the history of Gwen Stacy's role in the Marvel Universe, this movie gets rid of a lot of that. And I think we're all better for it because her character kind of stumbles into these comic book trope territory that I would just as soon we get away from. And this movie does that really, really successfully. Hmm. Um, interesting. You know, you mentioned it and other people have mentioned it as like a moving comic book. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's sort of, a. um, uh, a bridge between 2D and 3D, it sounds like? Like, how would you describe the animation? I know you, you tend to like Pixar movies a little bit more than me. I just have trouble with the animation style. Um, but this is, looks like an animation style that I would love because I like, obviously, the more Japanese 2D type stuff. So uh, if you just talk about the animation style uh, uh, briefly. Well, one of the really cool things about the movie is uh, that the animation style actually changes for the different spider people. That's awesome. Uh, you know, one of them, uh, there's a heavy influence of anime. One of them, there's a heavy influence of, like, Looney Tunes. Uh, one of them, there's a heavy, uh, there's, like, it's drawn from the sort of film noir and and black and white era of filmmaking. Uh, and, and so the movie actually keeps changing styles uh, in a way that doesn't lose kind of a central aesthetic, but f- brings new kind of energy each time they do it. Very interesting. Any other standouts? Um, I'm unfamiliar with uh, the Shamik Moore, Jake Johnson, I'm certain, uh, Mahershal Ali, obviously I know who that sure. is. Mostly, uh, oh, Zoe Kravitz plays Mary Jane. Okay. So yes. I, I know a few people. Um, a- any other standouts uh, in this or is it the, the movie itself is what really stand out, stands out? Everything about this movie stands out. Uh, I really like Lily Tomlin as uh, um, Aunt May. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of Aunt May character. I, you know, this is sort of this is vaguely, I think, supposed to take place in the Ultimate Universe. Yes. They don't say that, but it, it's sort of implied. So yes. they're able to do a slightly different characterization with May than they usually do, uh, and that also works really well. This movie is really quite a success uh and i've been hot or cold on spite on all these spider-man movies this one's my favorite well it's going to ask you and this describes me but i'll ask it as a general question is this the animated movie for people who don't like animated movies and the spider-man movie for people who don't love spider-man movies um i would actually say say no because if you don't like animated movies i'm gonna guess some of it is because of the kinetic just craziness and there's plenty of that so you may actually struggle with it, with how quick this movie is. You know, it's animated as fast as the characters talk. Uh, so I don't know about that. I also don't, I mean, I think if you don't like Spider-Man, you're not going to like Spider-Man no matter what. But I think this movie, 
certainly acknowledges some of the things that's wrong with the superhero films genre and pokes a lot of fun at it. So mm-hmm. that, you know, I really like. Also, there's like at least what ten costumes that he wears or something in it. And like, no, there's six, six. Spider Men, and okay. then I'm not. There's a there's a scene where you see some other ones. That's all I'm going to say. Again, I don't want to give too much sure. away. Sure. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> one of the reason I, I've, I've been beating the Heli Steinfeld drum uh, post, what was it? Pitch Perfect 2 was in mid-2015. Yeah. Um, and she, I had no idea who that, I, I forgot about True Grit, and she comes on screen in that movie, which is dumb but funny, and within two minutes is so funny and magnetic. I'm like, who is this girl with a Jewish mm-hmm. last name? I'm like, is her last name Steinfeld? Oh, no, Steinfeld. Yes. Still, craziness. And then she's a pop singer, and she's in all these great movies. Um, and it, it, uh, the fact that she um, has two, uh, let's be honest, like it, it doesn't get a whole lot nerdier than Transformers and Spider-Man, whether you like one or both or neither of those properties and she went to comic-con uh this past year she had never been she's not a giant nerd herself like that's not her culture um and she you know like took off an extended period of of her tour and and ended up staying longer and you could just see her i mean she young being young and impressionable but you could see how much the 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 comic uh fandom loved these properties and and really come to embrace it I, i think what i'm saying man is men young men and women tom holland whoever were starting to get much younger whether they're nerds themselves right and in these properties well i mean with tom holland it was time they cast a spider-man who was supposed to be a teenager and make him a free and make a kid to do it i mean tom holland is the first spider-man who actually felt like a child tommy mcguire looked 40 when he was playing peter parker and andrew garfield looked 30 when he was playing peter parker and they're both high schoolers Tom Holland actually looks like a teenager who talks with a Bronx accent. So, Which is funny because he's English. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, you know, accent work is accent work. Yeah. And he did a, a good job. Amazing with it. job. Yeah. Um, uh, the other thing about Tom Holland is, uh, you know, I, I tutor and, and do some teaching with high school kids. Right. And uh, they think Tom Holland's hot. <laughs> so apparently 17 year old t- Spider-Man, you know, it's like, uh, the, the, you know, still can be uh, a sex symbol for the, for the younger kids or whatever. Um, but I'm not ready to get into star Wars yet, man. But m- my problem with this with the Spider-Man um, movie movie w- was mm-hmm. it was just way too predictable of an origin story combined with a eighties style teen, you know, romance self actualization yeah. story. I, I-, I could see, you're talking about homecoming I'm talking or about homecoming yeah just as a contrast on uh, why i think i'm going to like this uh a, a lot more for the reasons you said and, and others that i've heard it but i don't want to say because it it's in spoiler spoiler territory which you know i don't care about but i'm not going to ruin um for the fans but i love tom holland anyways and i love him in avengers and and he's great in civil war obviously you know a lot of people that was one of his fa- their favorite characters in civil war um what, what was spider-man but this is like the uh you know it's the luke skywalker thing of like uh for some reason um uh you know lucas with the prequels and other directors with with, you know their big series are like well if we're trying to appeal to eight to 12 year olds so let's cast you know an 11 year old it's like no like we grew up looking up to luke skywalker is supposed to be 17 or 18 or princess leia right so 17 or 18 and i think it's great that they're casting uh kids 
uh, both in live action and in the in the com- uh, in the cartoon movies um, that are of the age that they're supposed to be playing. If that makes sense, um, yeah, or close to it. I yeah. Mean- yeah, yeah. Um, I, I am seeing here that Phil Lord co-wrote it. Uh, he did. Yeah, which is interesting. Um, but I assume it's not too snarky in the non-Spider-Man-y way. No, but it's certainly self-aware. I mean, it. It there's you never. I don't think there's a way to get around that with this character or with Lord's style. Uh, but it doesn't hurt the movie. It doesn't feel forced or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You know, if you really can't stand the snarkiness, then you may not like it. But I didn't have a problem with it. Interesting. Interesting. Um, okay, man. So that was Into Spider-Verse. That was your honorable mention. Yes. Um, I don't have a direct like corollary to that. So we'll just have that be our honorable mention. Okay. And, um, uh, and jump into uh, the main list, if that sounds okay with you. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So... Favorite nerdy things of 2018 featuring Maddie G. Maddie G, your number five. That would be The Haunting of Hill House, the horror series released by Netflix on October 12, directed by Mike Flanagan. I loved this, and I loved that I had no idea this was coming and had no clue what it was going to be. I heard a couple of good uh, reviews of it, and I checked it out, and I was just exhilarated. Um it's very odd to me that I seem to be the guy on this show that promotes horror stuff when most of my mm-hmm. friends would not characterize me as like a horror yeah, aficionado or anything. Uh-huh. But I loved this series. I, the characters are terrific. It has this really interesting, well thought out and metaphor about how trauma and drug addiction and abuse and loss and even just childhood in general haunt you and haunt a family uh, the characters are really well written. I think Mike Flanagan could get an Emmy nomination for his directing in episode six, which is called Two Storms. For people who don't know anything about this property, Shirley Jackson, most famously known for writing The Lottery, wrote a, sh- a novella called The Haunting of Hill House. It was turned into a movie. The Lottery is horrifying. Yeah, The Lottery is one of the great horror short stories. Yep. Uh, the haunting became a movie in 1963. That's actually can still considered a, a pretty darn good, scary horror movie. Then there was a 1999 version with Catherine Zeta Jones. That was absolute dog shit. Uh, oh, the original, is, I, I hate horror. I'm, I'm going to let you keep going But the original haunting. Even I, I think have seen part of, and is considered a huge classic in the genre. I believe. Yeah, it is. There's a jump scare in it that I, like she, a person just walks around a corner and there's just a person standing there screaming. It's really scary despite being super minimalist and people still like the horror filmmakers rave about how effective that is with no special effects. Mm-hmm. And then they made the haunting in 99, which was all CGI and terrible looking CGI. And there are mm-hmm. ghosts. They're like cherub statues. Claw. It just, the whole thing was a wreck. Mm-hmm. This is only, loosely loosely based on any of that stuff it's got some of the same names and the idea of the haunted hill house uh but it's really good it's spooky as hell it's exhilarating when i finished it i just wanted to talk to everybody i knew about it so if you like horror at all and even if you don't but just want to see something that's pretty cool and well made 
I highly recommend The Haunting of Hill House. Mm-hmm. Uh, b- before I respond and give mine, can I ask you a couple questions about horror? Because I'm fascinated sure. by this. Because we, um, you know, <clears throat> everyone who follows the movies or the box office knows that the uh, John Krasinski, uh, Emily Blunt, um, what was it called? Horror movie from early Quiet in the Place. Year. Quiet Place did extremely well. Um, mm-hmm. And Matt, we've talked about how th- there's no reason for studios to not make a thousand horror movies a year because they're so cheap. And if one or two, like like Get Out, you know, is hits it out of the ballpark, then they're they're rolling in money and acclaim, right? Well, that's what the Bloomhouse Studio. That's what their entire philosophy is. Mm-hmm. Is let's fund whatever we can try to keep interesting directors on in our like system. And then occasionally we'll get a get out, you know, the purge has had some good entries. There are people who really think the purge is great modern horror. Um, and they've made some shit too, but Blumhouse, because of how much they make back versus how much their movies cost, that's the studio that all the other studios kind of want to be right now. Uh, not Disney, not Warner Brothers. They want to be Blumhouse, where they can get interesting filmmakers that make critically lauded films cheap mm-hmm. that make their money back very easily. Yeah, yeah. As uh, to to paraphrase or to quote uh, Bill Burr. You don't want to be the guy with the yacht. You want to be the guy that's friends with the guy with the yacht or friends with the friends with the guy with the yacht. Meaning yeah. to be an acclaimed low to, to mid-level independent filmmaker but have decent budgets and support from, from studios, big or exactly. small, is I, I think the dream of like everyone we went to Wesleyan with that was in the film program, <laughs> right? Like I, I think that's fair to say. Uh, just so uh, for context, Matt, The Haunting of Hill House, not only does have an 8.8 on imdb which is really good um uh, for, for, it's very good for television but almost ninety thousand right. votes which is close to i believe like how many votes like jessica jones and those shows have um so to get a score that high but have that many people vote for it shows that this was indeed a sensation even though the bizzle knows almost nothing about this <laughs> <laughs> i mean if horror's not your thing it's not your thing uh, mm-hmm. which is fine it's normally not mine, but I've said before that I like when the horror genre thrives because I think it can produce certain kinds of emotional reactions that no other genre can, and mm-hmm. that absolutely was my experience watching this. So yeah, so i big fan of uh, that series. I don't know if we're going to get any more of it. I think if we do, it'll be with new characters, mm-hmm. uh, but it was definitely a fun ride, and I actually delayed starting Daredevil Season 3 because I had to finish Hill House sure. first. A um, couple more questions, because um, yep. I, I know so little about the genre. Um, the final one I'm going to ask is about filmmakers. Uh, even the best filmmakers have a background or love of, of horror, but um, do you see a pretty uh, definitive line between what we would call horror and slasher movies, or is it sort of a continuum of, along the horror spectrum? I think of it as a continuum. Uh, you know, uh, slasher films are, in my opinion, a subgenre of horror that really took off in the wake of Halloween, the John Carpenter movie, you know, the first Michael Myers movie. Mm-hmm. And after that, everybody wanted to do slashers. They got to be a little too ridiculous. Then they became torture porn, which yeah. I don't love. Although I heard an interview with Eli Roth where he made a really thoughtful case for uh torture porn movies so i'm still not ever going to see any of them but i have a little bit more of an understanding of them even if i don't necessarily like them 
the, 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 my argument is you can get much worse stuff in about 0.5 seconds on the internet if you want to. So absolutely. Um, and he had yeah. a point, and and it's been mentioned that torture porn emerged at the same time that revelations about our own country's use of torture started to become really widely well, you know, known, you know, they all come out around the start of the 21st century. So in a lot of ways, movies that feature torture are just responses to our own use of it in Mm -hmm. real life. So do we really have a right to judge people who make films about that when our government engages in it? I don't know, but I, I think that's an interesting question to be asked in the wake of this very much 21st century mm-hmm. subgenre of horror so this will link into my director's connection which is if you look at most including a lot of non-american directors who uh-huh. have succeeded greatly both commercially and um uh critically they okay. have various levels of backgrounds in horrors there's some that are obvious like ridley scott and guillermo del toro um, but and Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, who was, was himself psychotic, and so all of his <laughs> movies are psychotic. And t- I mean, he he ruined so many people's careers before they even got started. Thank God we still have Vincent D'Onofrio because when he put D'Onofrio through in Full Metal Jacket, if you read yeah. about that, oh my God! Um, although D'Onofrio is the kind of guy that would thank him for it probably at this point. But um, <laughs> but J.J. Uh, uh, Abrams obviously loves his horror. Uh, Spielberg, yeah. I mean. The Indiana Jones movies still scare me. I hate snakes and jump scares with snakes. And, you know, I mean, those movies are scary. And, you know, Jaws, Jaws. uh, There's something. Jaws is a straight up horror movie. Oh, absolutely. Even E.T. is scary at times in in its own way. You know what I mean? Uh, 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 Close Encounters, um, you know, with him. Uh, Then you look at someone like uh, Alfonso Cuaron, who's up first awards this year for Roma, which I have not gotten through yet because it's beautiful but very slow, but is one of my (laughs) favorite directors. He directed not only the best Harry Potter movie, but definitely the scariest, uh, even though it's only the third one and they're still like 12, 13-year-olds. So the first time they're actually like uh, starting to become like adult kids and mm-hmm. it, there's werewolves and and shape-shifting and dementors, uh, dementors. that look like yeah the grim reaper yeah well well people have commented and i'm not a huge harry potter person but people have commented that's the one movie that doesn't even mention more than once um voldemort and yet in yeah. some ways it's the scariest without voldemort because mm-hmm. of everything else going on children of men isn't a typical horror movie but it's the most maybe the most horrifying movie i've ever seen or terrifying i should say because of, of the scenario and how realistic it is and how it's shot so quadon has a sense for this i don't know do you have any others you want to throw into the ring um filmmakers um those are a lot and what we're starting to see now is kind of the reverse phenomenon of horror directors starting to bring their kind of sensibilities to non-horror projects yep. for instance aquaman is directed by uh, mm-hmm. Wan, uh, uh daniel Wan. i think is his james name? Wan. james Wan. excuse me james Wan, who you know got his start doing these sort of blumhouse horror movies Uh, And I think he's not nearly the first example of that. So we're sort of seeing the reverse now of great, instead of great directors having horror backgrounds or occasionally delving into horror, we're now starting to see horror directors move into more conventional mainstream filmmaking, such as James Wan with this, or Eli Roth making The House with a Clock in Its Walls, which is this sort of YA thing i i don't know exactly what it's about but it was a 
movie that came out over the summertime that involves it's like based on a kid series mm-hmm. um yeah absolutely um uh i know that um you know <laughs> among star wars fans there's a lot of debate about how many movies ryan johnson should or might get in the future sure. um but this current movie knives out that he's been working on is is a I think it's supposed to be a pretty dark murder mystery. Um, okay. Uh, with Christopher Plummer, Chris Evans, and some other actors um, called Knives Out. Um, uh, uh, so he, and he, he's obviously done some pretty dark stuff, and he, even in his sci fi and other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like Wes Anderson would be like the one who is like the anti horror director. Yeah, I don't think Wes Anderson has done too much horror, uh, uh, but maybe he'll maybe yeah. he'll take a shot at it at some point. But J.J. Uh, Abrams is the fascinating one to me because he keeps going back to um, what's that property? Um, I'm blanking on the name. J.J. Abrams. Yeah, uh, yeah. They keep they keep doing new versions of the um, uh, 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 the. What's the one? It's the found footage movie, and then they did another one. Oh, the Blair one. Witch? No, 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 no. It was after Blair Witch. Oh. Cloverfield. Uh, uh, Cloverfield. Yeah, Cloverfield. So there's already been at least two Cloverfield movies, I think. Uh, well, there's been three. There's Cloverfield, then 10 Cloverfield Land, yeah. I think it's called, which was the John Goodman, Mary Elizabeth Winstead one, and okay. then the Cloverfield Paradox, which yeah. I th- was the one that released on Netflix, which I never saw because it didn't look... I. I, mm-hmm. I I quit caring about Cloverfield a while ago. I mean, that mm-hmm. was a uh, not a totally successful idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and there there is an untitled Cloverfield sequel on the books, so I, I don't know if that's going to happen again. Point being, and I I wanted to make to compare Joss Whedon, who also obviously has a background in horror, even though it's, mm-hmm. it's humorous horror, is that. Sure. Even though I haven't seen a ton of Whedon stuff in the Buffy verse, I, I, right. I've seen enough and know enough about it to know when he's working some into Firefly or you know some of his other projects. Right. I, I think the sort of Victorian uh, witchy women uh, show on HBO he's doing will probably have yep. a little bit of this, but he, he or the like the Reavers, you know, which you know you're not a big fan of, and just the, the bottom line is the Reavers aren't really a big deal in Firefly until the movie. No, they're not. Um, yeah. but they are horrifying when we get them in the movies but in oh, an sure. orcish kind of lord of the rings way yeah there's but, but definitely you, an urukai feel to them right i guess what i'm saying matt and then we'll move on to another topic is if you told me that jj abrams never did anything horror and i'd only seen his star trek and star wars movies i would never think that he would have done horror whereas in joss whedon it's obvious even if you haven't seen buffy or, or so forth um so I, I guess you could address that specific comparison or just you know like guillermo del toro there's always some weirdness going on in his right. movies uh i guess pacific rim was dark it wasn't really much horror in it but um like i love like the original two hellboy movies um for example that has some interesting stuff in it pan's labyrinth is very scary Yeah, pan's labyrinth has definite horror themes and with joss whedon the one you're missing and mm-hmm. my guess is maybe you just didn't see it is yeah. cabin in the woods yeah I, which is yes straight yes. up a horror movie while also being a send-up of convent other kind of horror movies yep 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 absolutely absolutely i guess the difference is i think it's for jj abrams it's scratching an itch and then he does other stuff with joss whedon it's in just in the in guillermo del toro even more in the fabric of just their their filmmaking um quick related question and we'll move on i don't know if i have a direct corollary to this and this was a great discussion which matt it's did i still haven't seen did you see the shape of water never did 
I've heard I, um, such mixed things about that. It's interesting that's the one that got Guillermo the 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 trophy. Yeah, I think maybe he maybe he was due. Like, there's always mm-hmm. that argument about whether or not, sometimes people get Oscars as basically makeup calls for not getting them previously. Right. I don't think The Shape of Water was Guillermo del Toro's best movie, and it's really not a movie I think we're going to be talking about. And mm-hmm. it aced out better movies. Uh, and I think. I think sometimes with Oscars, they pick the easy one. And I think mm-hmm. this was sort of the easy one. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the one that was about how we're all loners and we're all sad. And sometimes when we're sad, we can come together. Mm-hmm. Well, that's lovely. Then you had Get Out that was like, half of you white people aren't the allies to black people you think you are because you're still trying to use them for your own ends. Right. And that pissed a lot of people off. And that did not get nearly the attention from the Academy that it deserved. Right. When all it was trying to do is cause discussions, uh, as right. not piss people off, but Matt, people are getting pissed off. I have a loose connection to this, but you're going to make a, a, a call l- later on your list that connects better. So I'm going to push for moving to number four, unless you have anything else to say. Um, no, let's do it. Okay. So well, your number four favorite nerdy thing of 2018 is, uh, daredevil season woo! three. So we're sticking with uh, Netflix here uh, oh, yeah. for a little while. You has got something to say about this baby. <laughs> <laughs> so this released on october 19th so one week after hill house yes uh i don't think I'm, it was the single best season of tv in the defenders verse the marvel netflix verse whatever we want to call it but i think it's very well going to be the last great season of the netflix marvel shows i really don't know what punisher season two is going to look like even though we're just like three weeks away from it and to be honest, after JJC's Jessica Jones season two, I have very little confidence that it's going to be better. Maybe it'll be okay, but I just I don't see them really refining the magic from season one. And even if it does, I have hundred percent certain that Punisher and JJ are going to get canceled after next year, at least temporarily. And I feel like the knowledge that what we're seeing is the death throes of the Marvel Netflix universe is just going to cast a cloud over Punisher season two and especially JJ season three. So Daredevil was the last great season of this and it was really, really enjoyable. I mean, it was a damn good season of TV and one of the best seasons of superhero TV that we've gotten in, in this, in CW, in, marvel tv like the stuff on abc any of it like this was really really well done um i have so much to say would you (laughs) rather me start from the content side of things of just the shows uh, and then lead towards bigger picture stuff or or what uh i will leave that up to you (sighs) okay all right let me get a little bit of business out of the way and then i'm going to mostly talk about the properties Okay. Talking about canceling a Disney property is nonsense because the term canceling comes from network television, right? Matt, you know this because you watch way more network TV, right? So if they cancel Supergirl, let's say CBS had canceled Supergirl and not moved it to the CW. 
What does that mean? It means that the network that's paying for it is dropping the show and the studio behind it may or may not have autonomy to move it around to an unrelated network. Usually that never happens. Usually that means the show is dead. But Netflix is licensing their properties, especially from huge organizations like Disney, but also, you know, Guillermo del Toro's company has done a bunch of animated and other projects for Mm -hmm. them. Um, You know, they're bringing more and more directors and producers who are bringing in entire um you know um sets of projects not just a show here or there so this notion that they're saying canceling a daredevil canceling uh, you know luke cage etc 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 to me is completely a smokescreen and this is you can take this as an insult a compliment or otherwise when it comes to disney but disney is lying through their teeth with sabotage and subterfuge they want to get these characters and these properties off of netflix and onto Disney Plus as quick as possible and the fact that they're already saying that legally they could do do shows with them in 2020 which is the first full year of Disney Plus is already showing that this this is the case so this is not a Nostradamus thing for me Matt I'm not predicting this because I want it so badly and you know I have some big theory just realistically it's just like them getting the original Star Wars movies back from Turner Broadcasting which right now TBS owns the original movies and that's why they're on every single holiday the original star wars movies that's something disney's gonna have to work out business wise and so they're just trying to clamp down on everyone's expectations and everything i've read is that netflix and disney are scrapping behind the scenes hardcore at one another but unfortunately disney unfortunately depending on how you feel about disney they are going to come out on top because once they remove all of their properties from netflix netflix is going to have a problem um if you look at the numbers of the shows all the way from netflix they're defenders to all the disney shows that people show their kids you know the cartoons and blah 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 so i you know we can have a longer discussion of this later i'm not saying daredevil you know and those characters are coming back but the notion that it's canceled and it's all over when they've waited two and a half years between they waited two and a half years between jessica jones season one and season two one of many problems um you know to wait two years from now to get a a, a proper defenders team up iron fist uh, luke cage team up whatever um under disney's uh branch because by the way they've mentioned more star wars tv shows than marvel shows which makes me think they're leaving slates open and you know jessica jones i know season two was horrible i still haven't gotten through it matt and i agree with you i'm not super positive about season three and yes i'm going to talk about daredevil in a second because it's amazing but they renewed jessica jones season two almost immediately and we keep hearing that the ratings for jessica jones is excellent even if the season two sucked so so to, to think that they're just going to drop Kristen Ritter and even younger actresses who I'm going to address later, like Jessica Henwick with tons of potential and who have been also in their other properties and just drop all these young great actors and Charlie Cox because of a thing with Netflix, I just don't think is, is likely. I think the bigger problem is these young actors are going to have a lot of offers, both television and movies, I think, Matt, in the next couple of years before Disney's legally allowed to do something. That would be the holdup, not that Disney can't get their property back so before i talk about daredevil any response to all that well until i actually see an 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 announcement of what is going to happen with these properties i am going to continue to believe that no they are not coming back because the last i saw there was a quote from a disney executive that one described their relationship with netflix as quote unquote strained that was the word they used 
they fought over episode length, total episode numbers. They, which is why all of this is one of the reasons this is happening is because Netflix, Marvel just got sick of working with Netflix. And they said, no, we do not plan to import these shows to Marvel, to Disney plus. So my guess is what they're probably going to do is movies or miniseries, shorter, uh, shorter projects, shorter lengths, not full seasons. I could be wrong, but until Disney actually puts a plan out and says this is what's going to happen, I'm going by the only information that I have, which is that this is not going to be on Netflix anymore. And as far as I know, it's not going to be on whatever this new Disney thing is either, and I'm bummed out about that. And I know a lot of the actors are bummed out about it because all of the people involved with Daredevil were flabbergasted. This blindsided them, which does makes me think that if Marvel has a plan or Disney has a plan, they haven't told any of these actors. And Deborah Ann Wall is off making a D and D show with Geek and Sundry. Now maybe that's just a tied her over for two years or whatever. Yep, tied her over. I mean, I I gotta figure that's an easy thing to do, and it's filmed in LA, so she could do that and something else. Yep. But until I actually hear something from Disney about what their plan is with this stuff, mm-hmm. I have no evidence, just what you have, which is mostly speculation and kind of hope. Yeah, but what I'm saying is all the things you said just said are true, but to me, 90% of them indicate possibility of it coming back. The argument sure, I'm not... possible. Well, the argument I'm trying to make is not that it will come back, but if I were Disney trying to get it back from Netflix, all of these underhanded tricks publicly saying we're having some problems behind the scenes, t- you know, telling the actors it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but then the top level's already planning for 2020, 2021, 2022, and you know what? Maybe it'll be a whole new group of street level Marvel heroes and it won't be the same people and that'll be fine. You know, just like after episode nine, they'll have to find a whole new cast of, you know, young Star Wars heroes or maybe they won't depending on how that goes. But what I'm saying is I think Disney is do is strategically doing what I would think they would do, which is you would want to rip off the bandaid as soon as possible. The fact that they're announcing the cancellations as quickly and definitively as possible is to buy whatever the, you know, Know, term of um, you know what a non-disclosure agreement is so whatever yeah. whatever the legal version of that for entertainment properties is uh, like non-compete clause non-compete clause they're trying to get the clock ticking on the non-complete non-compete clause as quick as possible and this will lead into daredevil because you look at the cast of daredevil over the three seasons now i know you don't like elodie young i i have other friends that like elodie young as friends that don't like elodie young as Electra. i love Electra. i would love to see a matt and Electra prequel tv show that would be my dream but that would some fans would not be down with that i think she's an amazing actress he certainly is a great fighter charlie cox is i think has an extremely high ceiling as an actor foggy and karen get more likable as the seasons go on you know i didn't love season one when i saw it and then i saw season two and i like season one better and then it happened even more when i saw season three i like all three seasons i think they're very different i think season one isn't actually as much of a or Origin story slog as I remembered. Um, no, it's really not. It's no. sort of already. It's his first year, but he's already made most of his decisions. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so, um, but you know, sometimes when you go into a, a season of television for the first time, you don't know much about the character. You see it, you're like, oh, this is the origin story. But they actually handle right. it great. 
I loved the costume in the second season, but I thought it was a great move to not have the costume in the third season. They justified it both visually, but also sort of philosophically with the character. And, you know, Matt, me and my dad are doing commentaries for season two. And while we love the show Daredevil and we love the action hero Daredevil, we both get constantly annoyed with Matt Murdock's really self-righteous, self-messianic Catholic guilt thing. Absolutely. And I think uh, other than bringing back the kingpin, Vincent D'Onofrio, who should get nominated for his role in in season three of Daredevil, who's Mm -hmm. so spectacular, making Karen so interesting. And now I go back and I have a whole new appreciation for Karen. I think, you know, Foggy and his girlfriend are like one of my favorite hilarious couples on television. I could not get, like, Foggy Bear. I love that stuff. I mean, everything was just spot on. The Karen flashbacks were amazing. But the thing I think that was most important, other than the great fight scenes, was it was the first season I actually could relate to Matt at at all as a person because he mostly is just a broken man. And so he's much more honest even though he's still having trouble being honest with himself, man, but Matt is between the nun. Uh, maybe I won't give that spoiler away about the nun and, and yeah. the priest um, right. and the father. He he really has to do soul searching and, and they do too. You know, the Catholic figures that are so important in his life that influence him have to do the soul searching, I think is one of the most understated and underrated philosophical, uh, philosophically interesting episodes of television that doesn't have to be a Wachowski brothers, you know, Matrix-esque thing for it to be super philosophical. I thought the religious and philosophical, but also personal themes in Daredevil 3 were excellent, and I loved it so much, and I I, I know you don't like the Defenders. I really like the, the Defender series on rewatch. Between that and watching DD3 and then going back and watching the other Daredevil series, I finally watched both seasons of Iron Fist, and just as an addendum to this, Matt, I really liked Iron Fist too, even though the bad guy is one dimensional shows no range and even though it's sort of uh, um um Meacham, uh not Meacham, um ward uh yeah. you know w- ward actually is one of the more interesting odd uh wild card oddball characters in the sort of uh netflix cinematic universe or whatever you want to call it uh, and i actually do like his progression in that season um sister not so much but that was writing because she was very good in iron fist season one but mostly i actually think finn jones and jessica henwick have a really interesting rapport on screen that you don't see between men and women and it, honestly dude like since i've watched everything out of order there were times i forgot that they were like super romantic i mean they get kissy kissy a couple times but they seem more like brother sister in, in their relationship to me and i think that's part of spoiler alert why they you know decide to just be friends at least for now right um and uh well i guess i'm or something or something um but i just you, you know young men and women um especially uh, uh, you know both of whom are from london and doing trying to do new york accent and doing a very good job of it um, and having a complicated relationship and you throw in Misty Knight who's so fabulous and have some girl talk that you don't normally get on TV between a middle-aged woman oh, well, I mean, she's yeah, borderline middle-aged and a younger woman, great rapport so I thought it was a great year for Netflix Marvel and maybe my predictions about you know what's going on for real at Disney are based on the fact that they've ended on a high note I think Punisher 2 is going to be great because of Bernthal and I, Jennifer Jones 
Jessica Jones season three would have to be so dreadful to be worse than season two. And so they can <laughs> only go up. And so if we just get 70 to 80 percent of season one with Jessica Jones, hopefully they do just 10 episodes and bring back some of the people who made the first one so special other than Kilgrave. I think they just need a villain um, and uh, and so forth. Uh, I think the path forward is clear. And as I've mentioned, there were many years, like two and a half years between the Daredevil seasons, between Jessica Jones season. So if you think about it, you take two and a half years from now, they'll already have the property back is sort of the point I was making to wrap around is that they're really not losing any time, but they might lose their actors. Uh, I don't know what kind of demand you mentioned Deborah Ann Wall is on, on Critical Role, which I think we're going to talk about. Um, I, I, you know, Charlie Cox, I could see getting big offers. I don't know. Um, so why don't we end on that? Um, standouts from uh, Daredevil Season 3 or, or anything you've liked about the Netflix um, uh, series up until its you know, current end, quote-unquote, um, uh, whether it's actors or, or, or what else going forward. And then we'll move to the next topic. Jesus. Um, I mean, there was really... There's almost nothing I didn't like about season three. I wish Bullseye had been named Bullseye and had gotten his costume. Yep. But apparently Bullseye is one of these characters that has like dual rights. Cause I guess maybe he's part mutant or something in the comics. I don't know very much about yeah. him other than that. It other reminded than that, me of Deadpool one. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, he's Bullseye's uh, he's Daredevil's one him and Fisk are Daredevil's biggest vi- like recurring villains. So they couldn't call him Bullseye because of that, and I guess they couldn't show his costume. That was Colin uh, Farrell in the terrible movie, right? It was Bullseye. Yes, that was Colin Farrell in the terrible movie, and he was terrible in it. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a so, Nick Cage bad, yeah. Yeah, uh, but Nick Cage can make bad stuff fun, and, yes. and Colin Farrell's not as good at that. No. So, you know, I, I Daredevil Season 3 I thought was a triumph. I thought in a lot of ways it was him reckoning with the realization that all of his bullshit Catholic guilt, self uh, self exile, you know, martyr complex stuff. Not only was it stupid, it was making him worse at being daredevil. And so, you know, when he comes back to them at the end and reconnects just on a human level with foggy and uh, Karen, after spending a lot of the season, pushing them away, that almost seemed to be the show and by extension, the character recognizing that this was a thing people were getting frustrated with, with the Charlie Cox portrayal of him uh, and this sort of Marvel's Netflix characterization of him. Mm -hmm. And that in its own way is what makes a lot of this so disappointing is that I don't, uh, you want to have it hold, hold out hope that Daredevil, that Disney is going to resurrect this stuff in a p- similar form to what it was on Netflix. Fine. Have it. That's great. I don't have any such confidence. And what bums me out is that two of the four major shows are getting canceled on high notes with a lot of prem- promise that is probably always going to go unfulfilled that, you know, we'll never get to know where, Marvel would have taken, you know, where Netflix would have taken Daredevil. We're never going to get to see gunslinger uh, Danny Rand traipsing through Asia with, uh, you know, with Ward as his sidekick. I don't really care about what happens to, uh, to Luke Cage. 
And oh, I don't gotta know get, what, spoiler alert, we gotta get Jessica Henwick with the white katana, baby, in the Yeah, Iron we're Fist. never gonna Woo! see that. We're never gonna see... I think we will. I think those are the most two, most likely, actually, because of their age and, and the upward progression of the show. I think they're gonna cut and run, and maybe... No way. Jessica Henwick's you know, in episode nine. She's in the Star- Disney family. Like, they're not gonna get rid of her from the Disney family, because they have to wait a couple years. Maybe, I maybe. Disagree. I think they're... They said Daredevil's adventures will continue. They didn't say Charlie Cox's sure. adventures will continue i think they recast okay. and the next version is going to be okay. either mini series of four to five episodes or movies all right so let's my, again my point is not that it will happen or even that i'm daydreaming that it will happen i think that it's just more likely to happen than most people reading the cards and reading b- the leaves and b- between the lines and so forth that's, that's my whole point. but let's treat daredevil as if they had planned the three seasons from the beginning like orphan black did with season the five seasons and some other right. shows have had the opportunity to to do that um because this could be a blessing in disguise man that they weren't 100 percent sure that the third would be the final because if you if i look at like a lot of my favorite shows whether it's orphan black or battlestar galactica the fifth uh-huh. or the wire the fifth the, or the fourth or fifth whatever the final season is is the weakest in all of those shows um and it, they, all of those shows plan to you know to end when they want it to end and they want it to end you know like pretty heady note and so it was a little pretentious and the writing is uneven and and in my opinion we've never really talked about how orphan black ended but you know what i'm saying like it might have th- i'm thinking there was a 50 50 chance that it would go on uh so they wanted some closure but not total closure i think helped the series um and what and so to, as a final question on this number four um daredevil as a trilogy of television where does it rank in your um in, in your um uh I'm, I'm blanking on the word of of, of television history uh i mean it's very hard for me to to th- compare it with like star trek or Battlestar or anything like that but as far as superheroes go i'd probably put it up there with the first three seasons of arrow uh it's definitely a better three seasons than any three seasons of agents of shield uh i would probably put it higher than any three seasons of the flash i really think the flash season one and two were terrific and, and then it's been very good it's definitely better than gotham any any bit of gotham how dare uh, you <laughs> <laughs> uh, although i i will say that i've seen some trailers for the last season of gotham and it it looks fun it I knows know what it good. is in a way right well it, it knows it's over so it may as well uh-huh. just throw everything so we're gonna get gotham's uh-huh. version of bane uh-huh. and more like joker and we're gonna get a racial like we're getting a lot of shit in gotham season five so what's what would be this would be a good time man as we re- as we look back here 2018 and in, in general uh, you being on the podcast for what three years now um, which is what is your Ru- Mount Rushmore of, of television that you compare things to at this point? Or, or is there so much that you don't, you can't even put something like that together in your head? Well, it's, I mean, my Rushmore of the best TV I've seen is not the same as my favorite stuff in this genre because it's stupid to compare arrow to mad men. I mean, th- it's so if you ask me what my Mount Rushmore of TV is, it's going to be stuff like Breaking Bad and Mad Men and the Americans, at least the early seasons of it, and the Sopranos. Just like for most TV critics, that's what's their Mount Rushmore. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm there. Breaking Bad, uh, Firefly, Battlestar, The Wire, um, 
maybe one or two more. I I have Jessica Jones season one up there, but it's a single season, and so I, I don't know what to do with it. And Daredevil as a three season, l- let me put it this way: for me, it's closer to the non genre um, uh, Rushmore faces than I would have thought five years ago. Let's put it that way. You know, is that it, it may still be a little bit held down by being a genre show in terms of the mm-hmm. Mount Rushmore, but it's c- much closer than I thought possible, both in general. As a, as a Marvel thing, but it's especially Daredevil, which did take me a little time to warm up to. You know that I became a hardcore Jessica fan long before I really loved Daredevil. Um, but after the three seasons, to me, uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's up there. It's up there. For genre stuff, it's definitely up there. Alright, man. Well, uh, I think it was definitely uh, a, a great Daredevil season. We can agree on that for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it made me realize, dude, I remember when the Defenders were announced and then I saw JJ1 and DD1. I was just getting into the MCU then, but then I immediately was, and then with the promise of Luke Cage, I'm like, I already like this better than what's on the big screen, like this rated R adult ground level stuff. And right. Daredevil's the one that's been consistent from beginning to end, no question about it. And the fact that JJ and Luke Cage have been uneven and Iron Fist is okay, it's good, it took me a while to get to, but I still think when, even though you know me, I'm not the biggest TV guy, but for me, when the Netflix Marvel, you know, adult uh, ground level stuff is hitting whatever the property to me that's more interesting than anything that's going on on the screen with the mcu but we are going to get to that uh later my friend so Mm -hmm. why don't we save that discussion so okay here we go into the top three I uh, I wasn't going to have Matt tell me his top three, but I made him tell me uh, in that last break. <laughs> but I'm still very excited about it, even though I haven't seen it all. So, Matt, your number three favorite nerd thing in 2018 is? Uh, that would be the new season of Doctor Who. Woo! Uh, Give this it to was, me. Yeah, so this was, for people who don't remember, this made a lot of headlines because you had a new showrunner taking over in Chris Chibnall, and he had uh, to cast the new Doctor cast the first female doctor in the show's 50 plus year history. He did Broadchurch too, didn't he? He did Broadchurch, which is how we met Jodie Whittaker, uh, who was one of the stars of Broadchurch and then brought her over to take over as the doctor. Uh, the doc, this was a good series of doctor who I don't know that I would call it amazing. It started really strong and it ended really strong. I really loved the pilot, the woman who fell to earth. I loved the follow up episode, the ghost monument and I love the season finale, the Battle of Ranskor of Kolos. I'm not spelling that out, but mm-hmm. it's a big, long nonsense name. Minor spoiler, guys, because I've only seen half the season. So, Matt, do you mind just minor spoilers Pat, like uh, for this sure. one? Yeah. All I'm going to say about the finale is it involves the Stenza, the bad guy that shows up in the first two episodes. Well, he's the bad guy of the first episode, and then he is race are referenced in the second episode, the ghost monument, and then they disappear until the, the finale. And then they come back and mm-hmm. there, you sort of get the conclusion of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of wish the middle of the show had done a better job of reminding you that that was going to be a thing. Uh, Cause they just sort of, the show always has had a problem of dipping in the middle and being real strong at the start and the end. And this was very much like that. I, the Rosa TV. Parks episode yeah. was okay, 
but there was one involving a spider and the actor Chris Noth, who might people might remember from Sex and the City. There was the episode on a spaceship because there's all a space station because there's always an episode on a space station. There's an episode that involves intergalactic gift delivery, like Amazon, but uh, on a intergalactic uh-huh. level that was a cute gimmick, but didn't really work. Black mirror. Uh, there, light. Yeah. Right. And then there was an episode called Demons of the Punjab, which Ooh. is set in India right as the demarcation between India and Pakistan is being established. I'm just going to say I don't think I have the cultural or historical background That's to really gutsy. be able to judge the episode. That and Rosa Parks, both extremely gutsy. God bless them. Right. So I think it was a well done episode. And if I was somebody of Indian or Pakistani descent or knew a lot more about the history of those nations. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could appreciate themes and ideas and sentiments in it that I just didn't pick up as a middle-class white guy from Boston. Can I drop a little knowledge and you'll, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm, if I'm incorrect in any of these points. Okay. Okay. All right. Hey, the notion that Americans aren't into and have never been into Dr. Who is very false. The notion that American nerds have never been into Doctor Who is incredibly false. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I don't know any American nerdy cultural figure near my generation or even friend where that's not on the list. Like even more regularly than things like Battlestar or you know Firefly or whatever. Right. Um, and the third point I want to make, Matt, is the the amount of female. How do I, the female audience of Doctor Who it, is completely opposite the fact that they've only had men in the lead role up to this point. Meaning, it's not like a male property that they're trying to feminize, quote unquote, in terms of the audience. But like, there are so many women who have been waiting to see this because they've loved the shows across the generation. Yeah, I, I can. Can't I, can really I just? I, I'm sorry. Can I just share? Can I just share one real quick. Yeah. Um, Ashley Birch who might come right. up later. Uh, voice of Aloy in Horizon Zero Dawn uh, is what she's Among most well known for things. now, but she's done a ton of web and video game indie mainstream sure. so forth. She's been on Critical Role, which Matt's going to talk about. Uh, Tabletop. She, yep. She's Her up own there. series, Hey Ash, What You Playing? I mean, she's, for me, she's right there with, uh, and th- these are t- very tongue-in-cheek crushes, but her and Bailey and Ray right. and Felicia yeah, Day, yeah, yeah. like all those girls are so cool but she's in some ways the most interesting because she was like an internet sensation as a child anyways she tweeted she hasn't been tweeting much recently probably working on horizon 2 yes that's gonna come up later people <laughs> um but uh she tweeted finally got to doctor who uh after being away for a few weeks uh saw th- the credits immediately started crying composed myself and then jody whittaker said i don't know what's the line i am the doctor or whatever like the 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 big doctor yeah, line. Yeah, I'm I'm the doctor. This is like then Jody Whittaker said, "I am the doctor," and I started bawling even harder before something like like that. Like I think that's very representative uh, of of young female uh, the, um, nerd generation. Just as Star Wars didn't create mil- you know tens of millions of uh, female nerds, it harnessed what was there um, by having characters like Ray and you know Jen. I mean, all the leads uh, have been. Right. 
right. women. And dude, the Star Wars movie that did the least well was the one with the men in the Starring lead a guy, roles. yeah. Um, and not only that... Uh, but uh, th- uh, there seems to, I mean, the Kelly Marie Tran situation, which is what drove you and many people away from Star Wars, understandably, um, those fringe elements, uh, was very unexpected, mostly because the way that uh, Jin and Ray as characters were, were mostly accepted, even by like hardcore men. I, you've been following Doctor Who clo- more closely than me. I, I mean, I still have some episodes to see. It's been my feeling that from beginning until now, uh, Jodie Whittaker has I- either had no critics because of her b- being a woman in this role, or she's just so charismatic and sweet that she's neutralized all of them, or both. Thoughts? Well, for one, I don't know about the ratings numbers, but if I was a asshole internet troll... I would be focusing on Star Wars because that's the biggest cultural thing there is in the world right now. Whereas picking on Doctor Who is like being a sports writer and your team that you pick on is like a single A minor league team in Canada. As a Star Wars fan, I'll gladly accept that backhanded compliment. Thank you, Matt. (laughs) I don't even think it was backhanded. Uh, We're Manny Machado. Love us or hate us. We're getting our billion dollar contract, baby. Yeah, no, it's the biggest thing in the world. I just, I don't, I'm not having a Star Wars discussion. Anyway, you're, so well, tell me you're not excited a little bit about critics. John Favreau. I have to ask what? one time. This will be my only Star Wars question to you. You're, yeah. you're not even a tiny bit interested in John Favreau doing a original uh, series era a story with Taika Waititi and other great directors working on it. Maybe nope. nope, nothing. It's a bounty hunter protecting a baby who's the key to a rebellion. Okay, wake me up when you have a creative idea okay. in Star Wars, All and right. I'll make. Check it out. That just post note that I have I I have a two point five that will come after this, but before your next big topic that that, that, that reminded me of that we have to discuss. So um, yes. go ahead. So anyway, to your early observations about Doctor Who, the thing with Doctor Who before two thousand five is that it was only ever really watchable in the U.S. as reruns on PBS and video collections. So. It was always, it had a cult following in the U.S., and I don't know if it was mostly men or mostly women or split evenly, but it was hard to find. It was hard to find and watch, and so it never really achieved what it achieved in the the U.K., where it was a weekly show, just like any weekly show in America. Uh, Then in 2005, Sci-Fi had the first season of the reboot with Christopher Eccleston. BBC America pretty much took over. I think within two or three years after that. Uh, and that's when the U.S. audience re- and probably the global audience really started to expand. Obviously, you also had things like social media boosting communication and, and the growth of the fan base in a way that fans of the show in 1978 just couldn't reach each other uh, unless they went to conventions. You also had the growth of more conventions, and that helped too. Obviously, I don't think Doctor Who was ever going to Comic-Con in the 70s or anything like that or, or whatever there was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, the audience has grown considerably since the reboot. And I think now, yeah, there is a huge population of pre-existing female fans of the show. And it was time that they got a character they could identify with. Uh, interestingly, of the new cast... Disney's going to buy it. Mark my words. Disney's going to buy that franchise. I have 
absolutely no belief that's going to happen. But if Disney continues to monopolize everything, maybe. And that'll be something I bring up maybe in point in my last thing that I enjoyed about this year. Uh, of the cast, I think the guy I actually liked the most other than Whitaker was um, Bradley Walsh as Graham O'Brien. Uh, I liked Mandeep Gill as Yaz. I wish they gave Yaz more to do in the episodes other than Demons of the Punjab. A lot of times she's just sort of there. Um, and I did not like Tozen Cole as Ryan Sinclair. I, and a lot of it, I think, was I didn't like his acting. I didn't like his line reading. You know, Graham O'Brien you liked plays... him. No, I'm just kidding. What? <laughs> but, what? But, but you still liked him. I'm just... I, nonsense no i'm no, just kidding I, you, he you, was you, on the screen i yeah yeah I i'm joking you listed else. every possible thing to like or dislike and it was like dislike 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 kind of <laughs> yeah yeah I, well because i know that one of your defenses is always well it's not his fault it's the writing no, no i yeah, think this time it's the acting wouldn't that be funny uh, on a date with with a girl sometime who's just so hor- horrifying and you're like hey i have a list of 12 things i hate about you <laughs> Just go down the list or just a person. I made a movie about that and it was a pretty good one. So um, anyway, you know, I, I don't know what Ryan is supposed to be. Graham is this kind of older man and you don't usually get older male companions. They're almost always young women because the doctor was always a dude. So that, uh, but it was this older man who was in mourning and the exploration was how he dealt with his grief and his feelings of sort of, loss and confusion of having this partner that he won't see again. And he's he sort of just, you know, when you're older and you lose your, your wife or your husband, your yeah. partner, mm-hmm. the idea of dying alone, I think is probably a sentiment you start to feel much more strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to see him go through all that and the different emotions that he goes through while trying to also kind of keep a sense of wonder, mm-hmm. Very, very interesting, relatable, I found for me a little bit. Uh, so he's actually up there among the uh, companions since the show began that I really liked. Uh, I put him up there with like Freema Ajiman as Martha or Billy Piper as Rose. Um, Ryan, unfortunately, is way towards the bottom. Uh, I will also give Doctor Who credit for one of the best final lines of a season since the show was rebooted. Uh, which is none of us know for sure what's out there. That's why we keep looking. Keep your faith. Travel hopefully. The universe will surprise you constantly. That yeah, gave me she's the, the fun Star Trek character. I never understood it. this before, Matt. This is me being ignorant about Doctor Who. I'm like, this is like Star Trek, but like even more upbeat and fun and optimistic in a weird way. I don't. Uh, maybe it's just her personality, you know, her can-do personality is just so so charismatic and and and, and irresistible. Yeah. yeah, that's true, dude. I have make I I do defend or or make excuses sometimes for actors uh, mm. not being their fault, but I'm also someone who a lead can take me all the way through uh, at least a season of sure. a series, and Jodie Whittaker is doing that for me uh, uh, so far. I mean, all the side characters are great i assume be, being a doctor who you know p- production that that would be the case so i haven't looked too closely um there yet uh but she's just she totally is inhabiting the role and it, it's such a goofy role i mean t- I, I can't believe watching now how over the top tenant is at times or all the time as doctor who and after you see him as Kilgrave, it's like oh my god um but uh i don't know is that 
what like what's the core to it like what makes it doctor who i mean it seems like you're giving it a check mark as being legitimate doctor who if nothing else yeah. but oh, like yeah. like was there a moment that that happened did it happen sort of over the course of the uh, of the season in, in, in chunks no for me it felt like doctor who immediately i mean the first episode i was like yeah the doctor is a woman, but this just feels like the show that I already know and like a lot. Mm. So I'm excited to see what else happens with it. I mean, it, it, it never was quite as different as I think maybe they thought it was going to be, or I was concerned it would be. It, mm-hmm. it keeps all the core stuff of doctor who perfectly intact. Yeah. I mean, but that's a smart move because the yeah. force awakens made $2 billion by playing directly into people's expectations, even though they complain about it. Yes, no, absolutely. But, um, but yeah, man, you know, for me, I'm always looking at cultural trends. You know, mm-hmm. there, there was a pretty publicized report that seems accurate that says, uh, women, uh, shows and movies that star or co-star women, uh, in general make a significant higher margin of profit. Um, I saw that proportionally to ones that are uh, mostly are all men at the top of the show to which you and I are like, fucking duh <laughs> but yeah. the rest of the world doesn't get it's now the big deal to realize you know that wonder woman with a 100 opener it had a 4x it made almost half a billion dollars unbelievable like they're not looking at this every movie with ray or jen is making over a billion dollars for star wars yeah and dude you know, Comic-Con, to, to, to tie, tie in some other things with Jodie Whittaker and Doctor Who, uh, you know, this was the biggest Comic-Con ever in terms of major announcements of film and television. Mm-hmm. Um, but even with the Haley Steinfeld projects and Jason Momoa trying not to act like a barbarian and offend people by accident, <laughs> which he really has trouble doing because he is just a, a, a beast of a man. I, I don't know if that's, if that's a good or bad thing. Um, but what were the two most publicized things that happened by far? It was the Star Wars Clone Wars returning reveal yep. and uh, the Doctor Who stuff. By far got the most publicity. Um, again, you know, filled with female leads and co-leads and stuff in, in, in all these properties. I mean, the Clone Wars is mostly going to be about Ahsoka Tano, who's voiced by uh, Ashley Eckstein, who has a very lucrative uh, line of, of clothing for like yep, nerd girls universe. and also nerd boys um uh and she has exclusive deals with disney and 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 and, uh warner brothers and so forth Mm -hmm. she's unbelievable property she's a great person amazing voice actress so and so seeing her on stage with you know the doctor who outfit that she had a hand in and those two ladies i mean that's something only a nerd in 2018 might understand why that would drive you know young fan fans especially fangirls crazy Uh, sure i think that, that there there was a uh, it, 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 there was a cultural, a cultural uh, for our type of people, uh, immediate embrace of Jodie Whittaker and giving her a chance. And by all accounts, it seems like she's done a pretty darn good job coming in in, in, in in kind of a tough situation. Let's be honest with this role. A lot of pressure. Certainly a lot of pressure. Although, as I've said before, the fact that no two actors play this character the same way That's in true. some ways was an advantage, I think, because it meant she could play it however she felt the most comfortable. Uh, you know, I think that her universe thing is speaks to something I always thought, which is that the fans Doctor Who had had kind of stagnated on the show a little bit. And because I remember an interview with Ashley Eckstein where she said, 
Her doctor was Matt Smith, who became the doctor right around the time she founded her universe. Star Wars Episode Nine. Yeah. What? He's in Star Wars Episode Nine. He is? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, great. He's like kind of a major, probably bad guy. Well, I hope he does a better job in that than he did in Terminator. Um, but, <laughs> which, you can't defend him in that. You can defend Genesis if you want, but he was stupid and unnecessary. Anyway... <laughs> yeah it's funny you mentioned that recently it came out almost by accident that simmy and i both like genesis and are ashamed to talk about it and like <laughs> i thought i was the only one i couldn't believe it <laughs> we're gonna do a fuck you commentary with that uh like, enjoy that i'll probably fun. not not listen to that one no but it's gonna uh, it's gonna be a, just over the top talking trash you know but uh but anyway yeah i think ashley Eckstein is a good example of a fan who had gotten tired of doctor who and then when jody whittaker was cast found her interest in it had been rekindled ashley Eckstein. yeah i, I don't know what her, i mean because she was a fan of doctor who she said as much before way before uh um whitaker was cast like she was a fan yes. of his of yes. the show since at least yes. the matt smith era which was yeah. 2010 yeah oh yeah 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 she was, she's an, she's a Star Wars actress that is a fan, a fangirl herself. Some of them are, are not, obviously. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Daisy Ridley definitely was not a Star Wars fan before John Boyega mm-hmm. was a massive one. You know, it depends on uh, person to person. Um, but the Doctor Who stuff, uh, I follow Ashley Eckstein, which is basically her universe online, and they just pump out the Doctor Who stuff. By the way, I have female friends who have bought stuff from that company. They say it's very high quality, and they've had a great experience. So people out there, if you're into nerd, it's actually, they've got nerd boy stuff too, nerdgirlheruniverse.com, yeah. check it out. It's really not that expensive for what it is, and uh, it's much better than what you'll get at Target, trust me, uh, <laughs> with the st- crappy Star Wars t-shirts. Uh, uh, but um, but okay, man. Well, uh, I think we want to move into number two. Connected to this, as we get deep into genre, I'm staying away from Star Wars because your 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 furious apathy towards it is is scary, <laughs> and so I, I'm mostly staying away. Um, I will say, I, I mean, but this is my favorites of 2018, right? Can I? I can talk yeah, about it for can, a couple minutes. Yeah, I mean, this isn't my list. This I know. Is mostly I'm our scared. List, so I was if, just going to something with yeah. Star Wars is your favorite okay. thing, right. then please okay. bring it up. All right, thanks, Matt. I'll, I'll frame this around the, the podcast in general with the state of the business over the last year, which is around the last Jedi time. I noticed that my hits in general were going way up. And then Mm -hmm. I realized I was having more guests. I was having international guests. I was having women. But mostly, The Last Jedi created a lot of talking points for all of us in the independent media around Star Wars. And you know me, man. I mean, you and I loved it when we first saw it. Like, you listened to my and your podcast about Last Jedi. I I can't believe how much I loved it in those early days. I came to be very critical of it later uh, for Mm -hmm. movie reasons. But I defended it hard and early because of... the, the. the early reasons for people hating on it were dumb, but there there are lots of problems in the movie, in my oh, yeah. opinion. But I did think that the trolls were that it was the terrorist thing, where one in a hundred, but it seems like there's a thousand of them, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I did think that the Star Wars fans were sensitive enough, but passionate enough to band together and like try and run as many of these people off the internet as possible. All the while exposing hackers that may or may not be from this country that weren't 
involved with this and other Disney things. Um, and I, I will say, uh, I don't want to just do straight up back padding on this because it actually happened faster than I thought, which was that, that coming together of the better part of the fandom to the point where people are, can have like very rational, if passionate talks about like Raylo and stuff, which used to just be total mocking territory. If you were a guy to mock, you know, women about the Raylo thing, um, right. or, or just talk with the fact that we can openly talk about like Rose is not a good character and her writing's bad. At, you know, that's, you know, that's one where I'm not going to blame Kelly Marie Tran or whatever. So the story, and then when they drop the Clone Wars and the actually, actually excellent stuff, and then the John Favreau series and they confirm that the Game of Thrones guys are, are, are you know, it, that's happening. And then of mm-hmm. course, you know, for me, the Rogue One prequel, which you don't care about, but Diego Luna is an actor I love. So doing a Rogue One prequel with Diego Luna on TV, that should be very dark. Uh, I think even despite the bad box office of Solo, man, I still think this is a good year for Star Wars almost across the board. They have to be able to take a loss like something like Solo and, and also be able to, you know, to go into new direction, more directions and, and make course corrections. Um, you know, like they used to they, like Ryan Johnson's probably not going to get a trilogy now. Like, you know, many the people there still love the product, but you know, the, the, there's going to be like not a Star Wars movie every year and uh, you know it's interesting um, and then I want <laughs> we have to transition to the big number two um, uh, which is I read an article about a month ago that said combine all the movies that come out on uh, Xmas this year it won't even be a fraction of The Last Jedi or The Force Awakens and right. even though Aquaman is cleaning up overseas neither Bumblebee nor Spider-Verse are making a lot of domestic money man Aquaman's going to do okay it's going to yeah. do better than X-Men well, cartoons always struggle. You have to grade cartoons on a on a different curve than live action movies. But it's being called like the animated Avengers in terms of it's important to the genre, like right? I mean, I right. don't know. Yeah, no, but you're not you're not wrong unless it's Pixar, in which case they make a billion dollars on Pixar, right? Right. Um, and the, so the fact that that they didn't they should have released Solo over the holidays, they didn't. Whatever that that's done. But the fact that the the box office supposedly had a good year overall, but I, that was very front loaded by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So I will let you make that translation if you want, uh, transition if you want, or respond to anything I just said or both. Sure. So, I mean, I think the legacy of Solo is that it made uh, Disney completely rethink what its priorities are going to be. And it seems very clear to me that it's it's putting more energy now into the TV streaming side of things than the uh, movie side of things, which... I would That's like to think point. would mean more yeah. would I would like to think I'd love to think that means we're going to get more creative blockbuster filmmaking. I do not believe that is going to happen, but I mean, hope springs eternal, I guess. Uh, Wait, what could you be more specific? What are you talking about? Well, if they're going to be making less films and more TV shows, then what are they going? They're still going to have those well, time slot, those yeah. spots in the calendar where they want movies to come out. So what's going to fill their place uh i think once every two years movie every year i think once every two years okay so what is star wars going to do because star i'm not star wars what is disney going to do in those alt those off christmases because they want to have a movie every christmas because Mm -hmm. that's box office gold so those years when it's not a star wars movie what is it going to be is it going to be some something interesting and creative or is it going to be some more CGI franchise adapted IP right. crap? 
it's probably going to be the latter. I want to hold out hope it'll turn out to be the former, but that's yeah. besides the point. Um, well, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so first of all, uh, for the most part, the animated the, the two original Star Wars animated shows, especially the Clone Wars, but also Star Wars Rebels, uh, were excellent. Um, right. Uh, like even for an adult, especially for an adult, were amazingly written. They were very unPixar-y, uh, quite violent for its supposed kids show. I mean, it's full on. It's it's more violent than the original trilogy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, very mature themes, great Jedi stuff, and the introduction of Ahsoka, and also like an amazing Obi Wan. Like you know, like, t- right. like oh, and <laughs> confirming that Obi Wan Kenobi is my favorite Star Wars character, uh, other than Princess Leia. I think at this point. Um, but uh, so the Clone Wars coming back on its own was 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 a huge deal. But we knew live action was coming. But they're saying Game of Thrones budgets, time tables, level of talent. They've already hired numerous Game of Thrones people on the John. Fe- uh, and the lead Mandalorian is Pedro Pascal. What's his name from from Game Pedro of Thrones? Pedro Pascal is his name. Yeah. Um, and so the, you know they're poaching the crap out of it. So you look at Game of Thrones, and I hear they make h- hundreds of millions to a billion dollars per year at least game of thrones worldwide okay well that's a hundred million dollar budget for 10 episodes star wars is doing the same thing well what if we do three or four shows like this every year and one or two hit and then we do a couple mid-level and then a movie every year or two then it starts looking like you can make movie money on television. I mean, some people are. Game of Thrones is make, making way more. That's why, how much is Amazon paying for Lord of the Rings? They paid a billion dollars for the rights. That doesn't mean they're going to be... Put, I don't know what the budget for their episodes are, but this... Yep. I, I don't know. I, Disney clearly thinks it can make a higher rate of return on its streaming stuff than it can on big, like... $200 million movies. Now that doesn't mean they're spending $200 million on a TV show. It just means whatever the return rate is, they seem to think it's higher and that's worth more of an expenditure of resources mm-hmm. to get the, I don't know, 10 million cost, a hundred million return for a TV show. That's what I think their, their thinking is. But, well, I think, uh, I think you were hinting at this with Solo. Tell me if I'm, if I, if I'm right or wrong about this, when you first started talking about the solo lessons having to do with television. And I think, you know, I've talked about this with some of my contributors, Matt, about how watching solo, it, 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 it shows you what great star Wars television could look like. Like that as like a mini series would be amazing. And they actually would have spent way less money because they would have advertising, you know, at McDonald's and shit. And like, and it's also much easier by the way, to switch up the direction production team and a TV show than a movie of that size so they probably spent half a billion dollars on solo and broke even you know whereas tv is much less and matt maybe this is the way to lead into marvel which is i know that they don't always make as much money and there's way fewer of them and solo made less than most marvel movies but i continue to think marvel has um has CGI problems that Star Wars does not. I'm not saying Star Wars is perfect, but to me, on lower budgets, expecting less money, the Star Wars movies are looking better to me until Infinity War. And can, do you want to just announce your number two? So we, yeah, we can sure. Transition? So my my two is the Black Panther Infinity War combo. The two movies came out two months apart, uh, 
And I, I actually agree. I think Black Panther, one of its biggest shortcomings is the CGI rendering is not as clean or as good as a lot of other movies, including, quite frankly, Infinity War. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily agree that and that Marvel start that Star Wars movies cost so much less than MCU movies. I, I think the production, are, yeah, they might they might cost more, but I'm just talking production budget. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, my number two is Black Panther and Infinity War together. I don't think there's been a better two movie stretch in this whole genre, and it was definitely like the last time I felt really really positive about Disney and about the superhero film genre. And just sort of where all of it was going in the four. Well, now it's been eight months, but in the eight months since then, Uh Disney fired James Gunn over fake nonsense, like fake outrage, and then refused to accept that they had gotten played. They fired James Gunn over nonsense. They got played by neo-Nazis. They pulled the plug on the Defenders verse. Yep. And they made it really clear they want to dominate the streaming world like they did the movies for as long as they have. So basically in like early 2018, I was feeling really good about that company and about this genre. Nowadays, I kind of want somebody to bring an antitrust suit against Disney because I think they have become a monopoly and they need to be broken up. I think they have gotten too that much media power. No way. And – I just think they are killing blockbuster filmmaking and maybe I'll stop feeling that way when I see Endgame next in four months. But that like the high point of my interest in superhero movies was probably the Black Panther Infinity War combo. Black Panther was really smart and really interesting. Infinity War was a ton of fun and a Mm. very much a success, even if it wasn't a whole movie, uh, you know, but a really great culmination of 10 years of filmmaking and since then, I feel like superhero content needs to go way down because it is drowning out the ability for anybody to create anything else, and I'm getting really tired of it. I was so with you, and I was ready to do a <laughs> mea culpa about Disney needing to do a public... My solution is for them to do a very public internal investigation in, into that incident as to what happened. Um, so Which at least we get the truth. The guy who fired him was yeah. Alan Horn, yes. who was going to probably take over for but Bob Matt, Iger as yeah. chairman. Sure. And but then, and so they weren't going to get rid of him over this. I understand that, but you are too smart to call Disney a monopoly. Verizon and Comcast not, and those companies not. have way more control over your life and do way worse things. Verizon and Comcast are a, du- a dual monopoly. A monopoly is the, to have the exclusive possession, control, or exercise of something. And Disney has none of those things. Now, if they buy all the movie theaters and then all the television stations, then we have something. So maybe you, you see it heading that way. But as an entertainment, do you think Disney is going to stop with Warner Fox? and Fox? But, no, but they're not putting out more movies than Warner and Fox and Universal and Paramount. It's just those other studios suck and put out shit that get nobody sees and get shitty reviews. I'm sorry. Like, it's not like Warner Brothers doesn't have its chances against Disney. D- that would be like saying Disney puts out 80% of the movies. It just seems that way because they get 8 out of 10 of the best-selling movies every year. Okay. You're right. What Disney has does not probably constitute the legal definition of monopoly. But I do believe they are going to keep trying to consume more and more rights 
until they do more or less have control over every major franchise and every major thing. And then they are going to be able to keep getting away with the shit like they pulled with the Defenders. If they didn't have as much power as they did, they would have left the Defenders with the Netflix. I really, really, really believe that. And if you want to keep being in their corner and keep being a cultist for them... I'm really not. I'm a cultist for Lucasfilm. Not you personally. No, you can accuse me of that. If the world wants to keep sucking Disney's whatever, fine. But I really think Disney is taking entertainment in a bad direction. And I think it is killing the ability for us to get movies that we both liked that actually made me feel real things. Like, you and I both liked Wind River. You and I both liked Hell or High Water. Yeah, we're, exactly. Where are those movies Lady this Bird year? Lady Bird made I agree me cry. You. And Good Time put me into a higher... Uh, this. Robert Pattinson movie put me in this real state of but Disney's not responsible by themselves. It's it's all Fox, Disney, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, Sony, maybe one other. There is like if you want to accuse anyone of anything, they have some backroom handshake deal about who's releasing movies when and like I'm going to steal this date, I'm going to take this date or whatever. Well, I think there's probably collusion between all the studios, including Disney, to not step on each other's toes. That's another problem. But I'm saying is that if Disney wasn't studio. uh, Sorry, I'm sorry. Every major studio is chasing the Marvel and Star Wars model, whether or not it's the MCU or it's Star Wars. I don't you agree. like one more than the other. I like the other. It doesn't matter. They're both owned by They've Disney. Been that way. Ever since the original Star Wars movie came out, everything's been copying that for the most part. So No, that's not true. This is the most boring decade in blockbuster filmmaking of my lifetime. And Disney is definitely one of the three people uh, companies that fall for that and i really really wish we could go in another direction so what were these great late 90s early 2000s blockbuster movies that were so much better than the force awakens infinity war black panther uh, if the avengers and so forth overall just give me some examples give me some examples yeah men in black Two movies that had nothing to do with each other and that there was no... They franchised they Men in Black. Two was terrible. Three was terrible. This is true. But when those two movies came out, they were not put out with the intent that they start franchises. And that is how every one of these adapted IP sci-fi things now is. is it's always the first. It's never the only one. And that's different even than the original Star Wars films because George Lucas, okay. the first one... He made knowing he would. He had no idea if he'd get to make another one. So that right. it's like the Dark Knight thing. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. That is a f- complete movie with a complete character arc for all the major characters except for arguably Vader. So and that was why yeah. it's perfect. So you're a guy who openly admits you'll give a chance to any show of someone in a cape. Uh, yeah. And, but I wish there was way less of that. Well, hold on. And before the Dark Knight and Iron Man 2008, there was like no hope of any major comic book industry ever. Um, and that's these are the 10 years you're destroying. So the decade that has all the comic book movies uh, that have mostly been critically and domestically really well received, and yet you say it's shit. I just want to know what was before these movies that was so great. Like Terminator 2? Like, give me a break. Okay, one, Terminator 2 is better than a uh, lot of these. That kid's Two, more annoying than Anakin Skywalker. For the, for the blockbuster filmmaking era was the 80s. The 80s had f- more creativity in the kinds of movies that Red were being Dawn. produced. <laughs> no, yeah. Ghostbusters, Die Hard, Ghostbusters, these yeah. are some of the best stuff these genres have ever produced. 
I now guess. it is just chasing the same high over and over again. And every Marvel movie is just a variation on a theme. Some of them are well-made. A lot of them are well-made because these are companies that know what they're doing. But I just think they are crowding out actually creative storytelling. Mm-hmm. And they are always movies that are greenlit for financial reasons, for box office reasons, not for creative reasons. I don't see any creativity in most of the Marvel stuff, any of the DC stuff. To be quite frank, the Star Wars, the new Disney Star Wars stuff has been copying the same format. I just don't see it. And I feel like we could get more creative stuff funded by major studios if they aren't weren't all trying to be the Avengers or Star Wars. I I just if we could get 40% less of that stuff, we would have so much more creative film making uh, film choices across the year i'm just so much resource being committed to the same experience over and over and over again yes and i wasn't feeling that way after black panther infinity war i was feeling great after black panther and infinity war which is why it's one of my top five okay so what would you like to see then I want to see more movies like Wind River and Good Time and Lady, Mer- and Lady Bird. And there was a time when those kind of things that have a lot of indie art sensibilities mm-hmm. were actually getting funded by major studios, or at least more of them were. Now, your only chance to see them is if you live somewhere that has an indie theater. There was a movie that came out this year called Sorry to Bother You that I really wanted to see. And it didn't come to any theater on the Cape because all of them were too busy showing Infinity War on 10 screens mm-hmm. and Solo the on the way, 11th. By the way, Chris, uh, Christmas, which was yesterday, yesterday, yeah. um, so, you know, they do a per theater average uh, for, for movies and to, right. to, you can compare the smaller movies in the bigger movies. Right. Highest um, per theater average in America on the basis of sex starring Felicity Jones. You're welcome, America. Great okay. film, people are love has a hundred percent fan on Rotten Tomato right now. So we are getting movies like that in Wind River, dude. I agree though. I said to my dad a week ago the exact line you said. I said, "Where's my Hell or High Water this year? Where's my Wind River this year?" And as much Where's as I my love- Lady Bird, Lady Bird yeah. actually made me cry. And there, none of these movies really elicit emotions from me. They Black don't. Panther made me cry. I cried at the end of Black Panther. Uh, Black Panther got close. And that was had auteur sensibilities because it was just Ryan Coogler doing Ryan Co- making Ryan Coogler's movie. Most of these movies seem to be produced by committees, mm-hmm. and they are cold and and mm-hmm. stripped of anything actually interesting. So um, before the podcast, I asked when you were t- talking about CW, and then you said you're not even following CW at this point. No, I watched the CW, but. I'm not going to pretend anything that happened in the CW in the last year is in my top five. The CW is fine. It's fine. It does, it does some things better than any of this, which is I know you believe that like the defenders verse has the best female characters on superheroes on TV. And you're probably right. Yep. But is. they, but they and Disney in general have utterly failed at creating LGBT characters. There've been none. Or, that's 100 percent true I'm, I'm totally in agreement with that you know i but n- neither has least, anybody no none of the main studios have i agree and some of that i think is for the cynical reason that while there is data that backs up the idea that sh- having women as your leads boosts your box office i don't think there's any data that suggests 
increased LGBT representation benefits you monetarily. It which didn't is hurt why Star Trek Discovery. Has, what? It didn't hurt Star Trek Discovery, which did great. Star Trek Discovery, but that was a streaming show yeah. that was very much nobody knew if that was going to be any good or not. We didn't. We were very mixed on it until it actually came out and we started watching it. That's true. Uh, That's true. Although a movie that came out over 10 years ago, Brokeback Mountain, is considered one of the best movies of all time. But I guess that's the Hollywood elite, right? Coast. Right. But again, that's not, I'm not saying movies don't have good LGBT characters. Sometimes they do. I'm saying Marvel and DC and Disney in general has been afraid to put LGBT characters in it because all the movies they make, they want to get everybody. And they're afraid if you have a gay character to or show a dude make out with another dude, a whole chunk of the country will not want to see your movie about space wizards or people in capes. Agreed. Um, uh, I will say yet again, in all of the surrounding literature, there's a lot of gayness in, in Star Wars stuff, and a lot of those authors, sure, the comic book but that's writers, all the stuff. are attached. I'm for yes, so they need Disney to, to embrace it. Yes. If Disney embraces it, 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 I'll give them credit for but it. They, they will on TV. They will be able to. They're much more likely to on television, is what I'm saying. It's, this, it, you know, there's just more flexibility, like with Jessica Jones. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you could ever make JJ into a movie. Like, it's meant for to be a season of television. <clears throat> um, and so they're going to be able. To, yes, and people have certainly been. Crazy critical of it um but uh you know star wars fans ship boyega and and uh and oscar isaac like sure and they and, and marvel they and mcu it. fans ship captain america and bucky that would be pretty gutsy if they actually did that but they're not going to and i want to be clear i do not want to see this stuff go away i'm not opting for axing all of it i just want less i we would still have so much of it if we just cut it down by a third or 40 percent we would still get two or three superhero movies a year, a Star Wars movie every two years to to two and a half years, and at least one of each of those genres represented on TV year-round. And maybe we could have more creative storytelling fill in those gaps. That's all I want. And that I is, just yeah, want to yeah. see more diversity. And, which is why I think it's wise, and Kathleen Kennedy deserves credit for the Star Wars franchise, which has one movie a year, as opposed to the three Marvel movies a year, for the, for the franchise with the one movie a year to say, we're going to release even fewer movies, we're going to be the ones, like Kevin Feige should be doing this as well, because man, I want to build on your loved Black Panther and Infinity War, and as Time War on, sort of got eh about them, if I can build, <laughs> build on that which is you and I have been saying this since Captain America Civil War uh, on and off the podcast, which is what do they have going for them past Avengers 4 that we're really excited about? Because at the moment, the answer for me is nothing. Yeah, because we don't know what's coming. But they, even the sequels of the, the characters that were recently introduced, like, like, or if Guardians 3 ends up happening, like, I don't even want another Thor movie. Like, it, I, love, I love Chris Hemsworth, but if Taika Waititi can't make a great Thor movie, then I don't know who can. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't know. Like, I don't see the properties. I've been open about not loving Brie Larson. She still seems cold and uncharismatic to me. I could be wrong, but I'm not excited about the look or feel of Captain Marvel. I'm not into Doctor Strange, Spider-Man, and man uh am i missing any i guess black panther is the one i'm excited about if i had to be but the moment wonder woman 2020 is the main comic book franchise i'm excited about matt and i'm not sure what else in the movies because you and i haven't seen aren't gonna see aquaman so what's going on no, no I, I mean 
it would help if Marvel, if Kevin Feige did what they did about midway through phase two, which was actually give some release, some kind of schedule, some kind of plan about what's coming beyond homecoming uh, or I'm sorry, far from home, the next Spider-Man movie, which we know we're going to get. And really that's it. Like we don't know what's happening with Thor. We don't know what's happening with guardians and there's all this new stuff that's been talked about, something called Celestials. I don't know what the hell that is, but I guess it's a thing. You know, so, yeah, if we could get a little bit more of a clue, I think it would help a lot. Uh, and I think they're kind of killing their own momentum. I think starting next year is when we're going to finally start to learn some things out. I think as Captain Marvel comes out and then Endgame comes out, then they're going to start giving us some real clues about what the – phase four is going to be what phase five is going to be if they're really going to keep this up mm -hmm. uh, the, or uh, maybe they're going to be go doing ahead. what they're doing with star wars which is scaling back the movies we know they've announced a number of shows on disney plus's marvel stream those star wars just, shows are going to kill man i'm telling you people and you know what disney's going to do this will go along with your monopoly conspiracy theory disney right. is going to undersell their service to be so cheap to make it impossible for a third of this country not to spend five ninety nine a month and get every Disney property. Because if you have a kid from zero to 12, there's going to be, or beyond, there's going to be something on there plus star Wars and Marvel and so forth. So I yeah. think Disney is going to take over the streaming service almost immediately, even if they lose money early on and they got to kill with those, those early shows, but Marvel shows, I love vision and Scarlet witch and I love Tom Hiddleston. Those shows not getting really anybody that pumped about the Marvel side of TV and I can't believe that Star Wars is the one at the moment stealing all the thunder for television and Matt here's the thing I'm not 2018 I can't put a number on this but I've given in to the television overlords I can't it's so obvious <laughs> yeah, I've that noticed the, that it's, it's so obvious the creative talent is in television and the fact that Star Wars is like we still need to make epic t films but we also can make them as epic television shows I never saw coming and uh, the quality control in terms of who's involved on these projects is through the roof again Kathleen Kennedy and Bob Iger letting her do it basically um, and so I guess man that's the, uh, when I really one of the times I really interrupted you earlier I was just going to say about how you know like I, I, ha I have to parse a little bit between Lucasfilm and Disney because I, I often say that I will admit that I defend Disney but when I look at it I'm mostly defending Lucasfilm because I'm not really that into the other aspects of Disney especially with as per our conversation that ongoing right now about liking these superhero movies but being i don't know is just like apathetic and low energy like something like that like like miasma i look each of us has one of these that we likes more than the other and i think there is a tendency that is frankly encouraged by disney of if you like one and you have to def you have to defend that one against the other and you can't like the other as much I think both of us have been guilty of that at various times in our life, even though that benefit that like very much plays into their own box office gains. Cause if you feel like you have to defend star Wars or I feel like I have to defend Marvel, I'm more likely to go see a Marvel movie just as you're more likely, but whatever, that's, that's something else entirely. Um, but yeah, I think your feeling about superhero content is my feeling about star Wars, uh, which is just sort of, I don't want to engage with this as much as the company producing this is asking me to engage with it. Right. And that's what I think it ultimately comes down to is 
Star Wars feels like a, a lot to commit to, just like the MCU it is. does. It is, yeah. And on and whatever opinions you have about the conversations about either franchise it's my on DC social comics. media or it's my whatever. DC comics, man. Yeah. It's, yeah. You can't have, you can't, I mean, uh, some people like, like my guy, Pete, like Paul Herman is equally insane about Marvel and Star Wars, but most people, it's like, you can't handle it and you have to limit yourself even in that. I, I'm totally with you. I think that's, that, that's, that's our main difference is just like you being a CW person, me being a Star Wars person, we have different interpretations of where, like, I, I think... Of our C- own thing's quality. Right. But also, like, I, you know, I'm much colder on CW, obviously, and you're much colder on Star Wars. It was interesting. Um, but uh, I do think... Um, let me ask you really quickly about the CW, though, is that mm-hmm. do you... Given the CW situation and given, you know, a, a, a DC the DC universes, whatever, universe of DC situation... Uh, right. Do, do you see the future of DC more in film or television? Uh, I actually am going to say television because they've started their own streaming service and they've done a lot more announcing about stuff coming out for that than they have future DCEU movies. You know, the, everything with the DC movies seems kind of nebulous. Like, I, I guess we're going to get a Gotham City Sirens, a Harley Quinn movie at some point. I guess we're going to get this weird Joker thing with, uh, uh, Phoenix, not, not Phoenix. Um, Oh my God. Why can't I remember Joaquin Phoenix? Joaquin Phoenix. Jesus. That was embarrassing. I guess we're going to get that sort of maybe, I guess maybe we'll get suicide squad two at some point and we'll get wonder woman maybe, but DC has a real clear, you are going to get this much more Titans and then you're going to get Swamp Thing and then here's Doom Patrol. Mm-hmm. And all of that is their their streaming thing. All of that is their Disney Plus, though probably mm-hmm. it's going to be smaller because the content library is smaller. So I think DC is going to be – I think Warner Brothers is putting more of its intention on that too. I think that's where all of this is going is I think movies have gotten too expensive and too generic and people are just shifting to saying – I can get the same experience watching it on my own screen. Do you think that the, the, the companies have done the calculations where it's, 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 it, what's the word I'm looking for? Like that it's clearly worth it for them to have a, a big number of bombs. If they can hit one at like 1.3 to $2 billion at this point. Cause if you look at like the top worldwide movies, other than avatar and Titanic, it's all in the last six, seven, eight years. Basically they're all, everyone's swinging for the fences, including uh Jurassic world and including fast and furious and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? And, and Harry Potter. Um, it seems that that's what studios are doing at this point. I guess that's why Disney's trying to diversify more into television. I don't know. Well, I think they're starting to see that if they're going to have a bomb, they'd rather have a bomb they spend $10 million on than $400 million on. You know, the, the lessons of movies like Justice League or, I mean, maybe Solo broke even, but given how much money they spent on that and how important they thought that movie was going to be, mm-hmm. to only break even on it is a, a not a success. It's fine. It's mm-hmm. It's better than whatever i don't remember which company is putting out the mortal engines that the movie that's in theaters now or maybe it's gone already about cities eating each other yeah like that that's a pretty big loss that's a lot worse than solo did but it's definitely not what disney was expecting and it's why i think disney radically rethought where they want star wars to go so no i don't think they put out 
a couple of movies hoping one will make a billion and a half and one will and one might tank. I think they are going towards content they can produce a little cheaper and thus absorb the cost of if it doesn't work out, hmm. even if the rate of return on the successful stuff in that genre medium is a little bit lower as well. All right, man. Well, obviously, there's. I think there's a lot of just sort of inner introspection and inner dissection that we both need to do about comic book properties at this point. Um, yeah. I Sorry, think- everybody. That was a bit of a rant. I, I, uh, no, it was fine. Medicine. I'm okay now. Uh, I mean, I think I think for me, Matt, if you take away Daredevil season three and uh, just kind of liking the kind of quaintness of Iron Fist season two um, and being in love with Jessica Henwick, obviously doesn't hurt. Uh, but those two shows actually put me in a good mood about comic book stuff. I rewatched Deadpool two. I didn't love it as much as what the first time I saw it, but Deadpool was the one I was going to throw as like the possibilities out there but i don't know mm-hmm. if it's actually that different it just has a lot of f-bombs and, and sex jokes <laughs> essentially it's basically this it's a captain america movie where he's a total perverted psychopath um which is i guess interesting but um matt you know uh i, I like to look uh back at my podcasts and and see which ones perform well over a long mm-hmm. period of time and one of the ones that hasn't left the top 10 uh, in like w- like the 12-month top 10 or whatever since it came out was our tabletop episode where we talked that about... That puts me in a good mood. Yeah. So we're talking about Will Wheaton's tabletop. Mm-hmm. Uh, God bless Will Wheaton, by the way. Spokesman of mental health. He's, he's such a great guy. And... Oh God! I I I hope I hope his 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 book comes through. Him and Felicia Day, which we're going to get to in a second, are you know nerd gods. But he, he, we loved his tabletop show, which, as you know, Matt, I think you know, I didn't find out till later that it was this geek and sundry thing, and mm-hmm. that Felicia was also behind it. Uh, since then, uh, Geek and Sundry, like the Nerdist, were bought by a giant Chinese conglomerate. Talk about monopolies! Um, right. Legendary, legendary. Uh, uh, Chris Hardwick was obviously thrown face first in front of a truck driving a thousand miles an hour. <laughs> um, I don't know if he deserved it. I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, but uh, uh, this is not good for anybody. Um, whereas Felicia Day, as an amazing single mom, does seem uh, uh, Matt to have some influence at Geek and Sundry, which is one of the sort of independent producers. And I think the fact that you and I, to varying levels, varying degrees in, in different properties, have gotten into the stuff on YouTube and, and alternative media has to also inform our getting tired of the same old thing on the big screen, right? Because we have all these alternative forms of... Uh, of nerd uh, creativity going on, I guess. A- absolutely. And this specific thing where I'm going to talk about of critical role, that to me is exactly what a, a, something of something owned by a small number of people. It is critical role is creative is owned by its con- its creators. It is broadcast through well, technically it's owned by one of China's top 10 companies, but no, yeah. it's not. It is broadcast by legendary Legendary doesn't own the rights to it at all, and Critical Role has actually kind of started to differentiate itself from the rest of Geek and Sundry. Geek and Sundry puts it out, but that is the only cre- control they have. It they I'm sorry, it's the only control Geek and Sundry, and by extension, Legendary has. Everything else, it's just Mercer and his friends. That's another thing that I like about it. Is it is That's not great. That's great. something some big company doing this. This is actually yeah. just people making something that they like. 
And you know, I don't know if Felicia was at all behind that thing happening, but that's the kind no. of thing she would be behind, having it's, one of her babies remain independent somewhat, right? Yeah, it's a thing I'm sure she supported. Felicia Day gets credit for suggesting initially that this was something people might want to watch. But since that time, I know you want to support women who like kick ass and do a good job. Oh, no, she's not running stuff. No, uh, no. No, one you should be supporting is Marisha Ray, who left as creative executive at Geek and Sundry to become the creative executive at Critical Role. She's a genius. And she is the reason the show is what it is, that it has become this phenomenon. She's the one, along with Matt Mercer, for being the genius DM that he is. She is the one who's made the show what it is. Yeah, I remember the first time she was on tabletop. I was like, "Wow, this chick is fast thinking and super yeah. smart." Um, and th- she is a great contrast to to Lara Bailey. So, okay, guys. So, Critical Role. Matt's watched a lot of these long episodes. I've only watched one or two, like end to end. But I have it on my like I have a a Twitch app, man, on my TV, and I don't use it for anything other than putting Critical Role on the background while I'm doing stuff. Was it Thursday nights? Yeah, Thursday nights. Yeah. Um, and uh, at first I was like, oh, there's a lot of guys and, and two girls. But, man, those two f- personalities, Marisha Ray and Laura Bailey. And I had heard about Marisha Ray's involvement in the creative stuff, man, but not that to that extent. That makes me really happy because she is awesome. Yeah, she is. So the specific moment that I want to talk about is from an episode called The Stalking Nightmare. I have to talk. Uh, not- Wait, I need you to set up. I need for the listeners – they didn't listen to our previous shows. Can you just set up Critical Role? A, oh, what a, it is? Yeah, uh, a little bit more. Famous. Uh, the the catch line is a bunch of nerdy ass voice actors sit around and play Dungeons and Dragons. But it is yeah. run by Matt Mercer, who uh, the most mainstream thing he did is he's the voice of McCree in Overwatch, the 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 shooter, the the online shooting game yep. that has blown up quite a bit not as big as Fortnite, but he's the lead fantasy voice on every major video game yeah, including lord tons, of the rings dragon of these age people have tons of video game and anime credits yeah. that's just the one that people who don't know who he is already might know who he is yeah. you have a lot of other characters laura bailey who has been in 500 tons credits of lord of the rings stuff tons of anime stuff travis willingham She's the same thing actress. yeah uh, Liam O'Brien, who was the voice was director for Resident Evil 6 mm-hmm. and the voice of at least one major Warcraft character, I think named Illidan. I, I mm-hmm. don't know the Warcraft mythology very well, but that's yep. him. Yep. Ashley Johnson, who is a live action actor as well as a voice actor. Talison Ellie Jeffy. from Last of Us, for those of you out there who've played that. Yeah. I just got Simi, I gave Simi my PS3 recently, and, uh, all my games, and he was like, yeah, they're all good, but dude, The Last of Us is fucking amazing. I was like, I know, right? I don't, I don't like good. horror, Matt. I've told you this, that I get my horror with my video games, because I find film horror so, so much. So yeah, SC John, and they're rapping on Last of Us 2. Go ahead. Yeah, and then uh, the last couple are Sam Regal, who... I don't know how much voice work he does. I know he does some. Uh, he's also it's like he's the been dude. an actor, yeah. a little kid. I mean, he was in Les Mis on Broadway as Gavroche, which is the little kid uh, who gets shot midway through. Oh, I love Gavroche. Uh, uh, and then you have Talison Jaffe, who's the last one, also an anime and video game voice guy. Uh, his grandfather wrote the screenplay version of Breakfast at Tiffany's and The Seven Year Itch. So he's like old world Hollywood and he kind of acts that way. Hmm. Um, 
and they play Dungeons and Dragons. So the episode I want to talk about Mm -hmm. came out in August 3rd. So back on right around June 28th with, uh, they had an episode called diversion paths and in it, Laura Bailey and Travis Willingham are married. And I think that day or maybe late the previous night, Laura Bailey gave birth to their son, Ronan. So obviously she wasn't there to record. Ronan, Bailey, yeah. Or Willingham. That's awesome. Yeah, sorry. Obviously Travis wasn't there to record. And obviously they were going to be out of the picture for a little while doing, you know, newborn baby parent stuff. So Matt Mercer had to scramble to come up with a new narrative that would Hmm. explain why their characters, Travis plays a half-orc warlock named Ford, and uh, Mm -hmm. Laura Bailey plays a tiefling uh, cleric named Jester, Mm -hmm. why they're suddenly not there like week after week after week. So, If I may, if I may. Yeah. But whether you guys have a lot of experience out there with D&D or not, probably know that the GM or DM, uh, the Dungeon Master or Game Master, is the one telling the story and that you're playing against, but is also leading you. Challenge you just put out there, man. If you are a great GM and you love doing it, you live for that shit, right? I would think Matt Mercer would have loved that challenge. I think he liked it, but I think oh, he had stressful. Yeah, <laughs> I think he had about twelve hours oh, to God. us to change it. I mean, That's Liam rough. O'Brien was going to be to miss the episode. He was camping with his kids, but they would have been so down on numbers that basically he uh, he skyped in from the woods mm-hmm. uh, to record the episode. Uh, so anyway, to get around this, he, uh, Matt Mercer came up with this group called the Iron Shepherds, who are slavers who kidnap uh, Laura Bailey, Travis Willingham, and Ashley Johnson's characters because she was leaving the show for a little while for, I'm not sure what, maybe an acting gig, some kind of like live-action recording thing. And so they get taken by the Iron Shepherds and the, le- the guy who runs them, a guy named Lorenzo. And then the next week, the remainder of the party, along with Ashley Birch as playing a dwarf fighter named Which Ted, we're getting back to that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah so I'm glad yeah. you brought up Ashley Birch. Yeah. They try to take on the Iron Shepherds and get their friends back. And spoiler here, if you're going to watch the show, stop listening right now because this is huge. All right, spoiler they, warning starting yeah. now. Go ahead. They're able to kill one of the Iron Shepherds, but in the process, Taliesin Jaffe's character, Molly Mock a blood hunter, which is a custom class guy gets killed. And he's the first character to ever die like permanently and not resurrect five minutes later Hmm. on critical role in the show's history. It's been on the air for about four years now, and that had never happened before. So you had this super vicious bad guy who had killed a main character and was about to mentally and physically torture three other main characters and the next few episodes were all about tracking him down to his lair and finally getting, you know, getting revenge on him. Birch was along for the whole way. She was really good. I had questions about her at first, but I once I got more about how the show worked, I really had no problems and really loved her character. You had another voice actor named Somali Montano play a, another character for a few episodes, a Firbolg, which is kind of like a minotaur, a druid um, named Neela. She was really interesting. She wasn't like goofy and funny. She was just very warm and kind and brought a really different energy. And then it all coalesced in a live show at Gen Con on August the 3rd called The Stalking Nightmare. Gen Con being? 
one of the largest uh, nerd conventions in the world, a little more geared towards gaming, a little less geared towards broad pop culture the way San Diego Comic-Con is. Um, but, I mean, it, it, it goes back, it's a, like a 40 or 50-year-old convention at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but they very rarely you. do live shows. They only have done one or two. But this one begins with everybody coming out of the stage in costume, including Sam Regal wearing a pink latex dragon costume with a giant white LED stuffed in his crotch on roller skates. Of course. Why not? Like you do. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It has Travis and Laura appearing via video, which is the first time they had been on screen since they left the show. And Travis saying, I want you to kick some fucking ass because his character has a Texan (laughs) accent. Of course. And then just an amazing, it's all combat, but it's just great, great combat. And at the end, because of a mistake Mercer makes and admitted on the spot, they are able to kill Lorenzo at this live show. And the entire audience stands up cheering. They get a massive standing ovation. It was as satisfying a vengeance death as uh, Ramsey Bolton getting eaten by dogs on <laughs> the road. Even I know that, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, this is as good as any bad guy getting it moment I can end remember. Of, end of Wind River, very end of Wind River. Yeah, end of Wind River, watching the guy just choke to death on his own blood, yeah. running barefoot through the snow. Like, yeah. So you made it six miles. Let's see how far you can make it. Yeah. Just yeah. 30 feet, just dead. Oh, Jeremy Renner. Yeah, go ahead. Guy, you hate dying moment. This was as cool and as meaningful for for me as any of those. And that was the moment that kind of crystallized in my mind how much I cared about these characters and how much I really mm. loved this show. And to see the crowd get into it the way that they did, where they were awing and cheering with each hit uh and and booing like they were so into it mm-hmm. that's what made me really crystallize for me that this is actually so, a, a community the critter community as it's called and when it was over matt mercer got up to thank them and you could see the tears in his eyes like this was a really emotional meaningful moment in this silly show about people pretending to be wizards and orcs and it was just fantastic and it was my favorite nerd moment of this entire year hmm um can i run a a few nerdy things about the show because i haven't watched enough to know all this which is i was going to ask you if which D &D edition they use but then it occurred to me that maybe they're off the reservation completely no they use 5e i think maybe there's like one or two home rules uh but it's basically all 5e Mm -hmm. um says they did used to play some pathfinder though which is bizarre they did did. okay um adapting the show to put it on air they decided to switch to 5e because pathfinder i guess is a little bit more stat based and it's a little clunkier and they just thought it would be easier to streamline everything if they went with 5e and then they got sponsored by uh, a company called D beyond which if you do want to create a character it's a really intuitive character creations uh website mm-hmm. uh, i've used it a couple of times and i really like it and i don't know a lot about that stuff and i found it very easy to to figure out um and i think once that happened they they went they it was definitely going to be 5e from there um who are some of your favorite because i i I have to ask you about ashley birch because 
you were told me about it and people were like like the people from the show were tweeting the most bizarre things while she was on and she was tweeting the most bizarre things so i want to ask you about it but of the main cast obviously matt mercer's ridiculous um right. ridiculously talented and good as the as the gm uh, who, who are some who are some of your uh your your faves uh, my favorite characters are Liam's character, Caleb, who is this really damaged, uh, broken kind of wizard. And his friend is Sam Regal. The two of them are best friends in real life, and that's really cute to watch, um, who plays a goblin rogue named Knot. Hmm. And so Sam Regal's first season character was this bard who was intentionally very in-your-face, and he was supposed to be funny, for Sam Regal to bring that same level of comedy to this other character who is a lot sadder and different is really, really impressive. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so, uh, do you, uh, so, you know, the, 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 the members of the show, various levels, as you pointed out of what they're doing and how much of it they're doing and so forth. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, I, I mean, just from being a little bit of a video gamer, the two voices that you hear all the time are Lar Bailey and Matt Mercer. I mean, yeah. they do so many lead voices on all the big Japanese games, the Final Fantasy games, the Lord of the Rings games, uh, Dragon Uncharted. Age, Uncharted, all of it. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so Matt's actually easier to recognize. Laura Bailey can do some pretty different voices, mm -hmm. uh, but I think that's because they're asking Matt Mercer to be doing the sort of sexy, dark fantasy guy, you know, like they want the Matt Mercer voice, I think. So, you know, right. that's, that's what they want or whatever, but there, you know, there's a ton of connection. You know, we were talking about Felicia's involvement or lack thereof. I mean, just the fact that she, at least for a while, she would always broadcast it on her channel too, uh, which is, mm -hmm. does have a lot of people. We should point out, Matt, that the average daily watchers just on Twitch for this is in the tens of thousands, at least. And, you know, like no one gets those hits. Like even the top, only the top gamers, like Ninja, people you've heard of, get yep. get more hits than that. And because it's five hours long, um, it's unbelievable. I have to ask where the funding comes from for that show. Do you have any idea? Um, I don't know where the funding comes. I mean, they have sponsors. D and D Beyond is their big one. Tor Books has given them some money. The Rook and the Raven has given them some money. I don't get the sense the show is super expensive to produce. It's just one set with like two cameras and they obviously they have a crew. So they've got to be generating enough revenue to, to pay their crew. Uh, but I don't think it's a super expensive show to make. So maybe geek and sundry funds it and pays for it through subscriptions. I really, I don't have an answer to that. I well, wish there's I right. There's Alpha. There's, you can also. There's Project Alpha, yeah, which I may subscribe to at some point because they got some stuff coming out on that that yeah. look kind of interesting. I want to check out Deborah Ann Wall's show. Um, whatever this Sagas of Sundry thing is, looks like that might be kind of cool. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it, yeah, the filming isn't expensive. The amount of computer power they need is is intense. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Um, but 
uh, the, the fact that they go five hours, I mean, what's comparable in any media out there to this? I mean, yeah, you say it doesn't cost much. They probably want to pay themselves something for all that time and energy to be on for five hours is just insane. Um, can you talk about just the experience of watching something so epically long um, uh, uh, and sort of like what's the flow during it for our watchers? Like, like is there a moment where people are really into it and then people sort of relax a little bit? Like, how, you know what I mean? Because that is a lot of time. No, I mean, they jump into it pretty quickly. You know, mm-hmm. every episode starts with Sam Regal doing a bit like a bunch of funny jokes related to D&D Beyond. Uh, there's, uh, they're very hard to explain. I suggest checking them out. Most of them are pretty funny. Um, there's one where he just reads the copy, but he has fart noises playing in the background. Oh, that's funny. It's really funny to just watch everybody else lose it, watching him do this. Um, there's one, some, they've introduced some animated stuff. They did, uh, he wrote a song for D and D beyond and somebody animated that. And so he introduced that one episode and everybody flipped out over it. Hmm. Um, they've recently, those same people, they hired them to do an animated intro for critical role itself. Uh, so they introduced that. He did a stop motion movie where a couple of toy mice squeak across the ground. And then he pulls an Emmy that he won and has it spinning in the middle, which is pretty funny. Um, so there's that there's the song matt mercer gives a one minute recap of what's happened recently and Mm -hmm. then they're in it i mean they're in their characters right away Mm -hmm. i think they probably talk a little bit about where they want to go in the first couple of minutes maybe before the show starts sure um like i know that for instance so the episode after lorenzo kills uh talison's character the next episode begins with Mercia Ray's character, Bo, uh, a monk, uh, which is like D&D ninja, attacking Ashley Birch's character. Mm-hmm. And Mercia Ray said she asked Ashley, like, is it okay if I do this to start this next episode? It's obviously role play. I'm not actually going to be mad at you. And Ashley was like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. Wait, which it Ashley are we talking about? Birch. Oh, Birch. Okay. Because people blamed birch is just want to ask you about birch what happened allison's death so okay they attack ashley uh keg ashley birch's character tells them everything she knows about who these guys are what they can do what their classes and races are uh it turns out a lot of that info is wrong and so the the team is woefully underprepared for uh what's to come in this battle and then when Keg takes her first turn, Ashley decides that for roleplay reasons, Keg would be freaked out trying to fight these people that she hates and wants to kill. And so she gives herself disadvantage for the next round. Hmm. So she basically takes herself out of the fight before she can get into it. And I think those two things combined to, with uh, just the sexism on Twitter combined to make people really mad at her and blame her after that happened. The reality is probably Matt Mercer gave her false info. And honestly, with everything I learned about her character's backstory, it it makes role play sense why this would happen. And again, these aren't real people, so nobody actually died. 
Yeah, it's interesting that they would put that on on Ashley Birch because uh, when I heard something weird went down, you know, I know that she's she's also God bless her been an advocate outspoken about you know social anxiety and things that she suffers from and. You right, know, being a young actress and, uh, and and so forth, and she knows those people pretty well on Geek and Sundry, and it's a pretty low key set. But part of me was like, oh, maybe she's going to try and do something crazy to overcompensate and like fit in, you know, like with good intentions. But it sounds like that's not exact. It sounds much more complicated. It's not really her fault. Uh, not that it matters her, anywhere. I mean, yeah. what's fault? I mean, she right, to give yeah, herself yeah, yeah. disadvantage. It wasn't her responsibility. I think that's happened before on CR. I think it happened. In campaign one which i've never watched mm-hmm. and even if it doesn't i actually can understand why this would happen of wanting to overcompensate and then cracking a little bit when faced with it because her whole character's backstory is she used to work for them but she had a friend that they enslaved and like tortured in front of her so all of that makes sense mm-hmm. and certainly after that she stays with them and that never happens again you know she very much makes up for it in the subsequent fights. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, all right. One or two final questions about this. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, time-wise, chronology-wise, it seemed like uh, the success of them doing some RPG experiments on tabletop would lead to more intense ones with Critical Role. But interestingly, man, unless I'm getting my dates wrong, Critical Role premiered a few months before Titan's Grave did in 2015. Um, Critical Role actually came out three months earlier. Now, at the time, Titan's Grave was, you know, ridiculously watched over a million hits, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Critical Role, you know, its its total hit count is, is, you know, on another level because of how devoted they have and uh, become to it and and, and the product that they've brought to people. So, I I don't really have a question as much as, like, the the seeming sort of baton handoff, including with some of this, you know, a lot of the same uh, faces uh, from Tabletop, which seemed like it would be more sustainable than it was to Critical World, which I, man, honestly, even two or three years ago, would never have believed such a thing could exist. <laughs> it's, it's a miracle. Uh, how, how do you see that kind of uh, handoff there or just like that Critical World is, see, I mean, it's the most popular tabletop show right now, right? By far. Yeah, I, I think Adventure Zone is also pretty popular. I don't know much about that. I know people who listen to it and really like it. I think Critical Role dwarfs all the others. I'd be really interested to see if Wizards by the Coast has ever said whether or not this is all translated to actual more sales of D&D books and, and whether or not it's actually having an effect. I mean, I've started playing D&D because of this show. Uh, as for Titan's Grave, in the wake of Critical Role's rise, I can't watch Titan's Grave anymore. It looks really cool, but it just feels like... Well, there's no reason to. You've yeah, got, it just feels like ideas that never really got fully realized because they only had one season, and I don't see Laura Bailey ever going back to wanting to do Titan's Grave again. No, because they would never. She's, she's pretty damn busy between being a mom doing this and still doing voice work. I mean, none of them have given up their day jobs to focus on this. Uh, you know, the last episode, Laura Bailey showed up late because she was coming from work. I don't know what that mm-hmm. is, but I'm assuming that's video game recording or anime recording. Yep. 
Um, I, I guess for me, I totally agree with you. And yeah, Cricket World supplanted it. It's yeah. There's be no reason to go back to Titans Grave at this point, except maybe like a couple episodes are funny. But um, I guess I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind seeing them spin off some you know like tv length like 10 episode more narratively structured things as well as their normal thing it could be with some of the same guests or some different guests or people that have been on before you know um uh like wait sorry say that again i, I like a more it. titan's grave-esque thing where it is a little bit more structured it's a little bit more close but it you know but moves more narratively it's it's a mixture of storytelling and role-playing as they try that was what they tried yeah. to do with titan's grave right it worked there in some was, places but not, ever. I, I just i wouldn't mind seeing that experiment furthered i guess i would say Sure, and we'll see if, for instance, Relics and Reliquaries, the the Deborah Ann Wall D and D show, if that's going to come out in two months. Maybe that that strikes the balance that you want. Yep. I think there's a pretty good mix of role play and dice rolling in Critical Role. I've since we did our episode, I've gained a much greater appreciation for how much you can actually do with the D and D system, and having started playing it. It's really not that daunting to learn how to play. Almost everything you're going to do is rolling the d20 dice, and everything else is just effect-based. So as long as you understand that, then it's just about learning strategy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, man. I'll end, I'll end with a personal... Uh, no, not that personal, but a life qu- question, which is just, uh, have you been gaming and any interesting games we should check out? Um, and then we'll wrap this thing up. Like video games? No, like board gaming, like you know, or or just D and D. I don't think I've played anything new. I got my friends Gloom, which was a game that mm-hmm. showed up on tabletop. Gloomhaven? No. no, no, Gloom, oh, the okay. card game where you're trying to kill your characters. Okay. Yeah, it's very funny. I mean, it, it, if you can get a group that gets into it, it's mm-hmm. a it's an enjoyable party game. Um, and mm-hmm. if you like the art of Edward Gorey. If you know who that is, you already know what that art looks like. This game is heavily based on the art style of Edward Gorey. So if that's your thing, you might get a kick out of the game just for that. Hmm. Um, his art style, by the way, was what was in that um, the books that the house with the clock in its walls, that movie I mentioned earlier, is mm-hmm. based on. Mm-hmm. Just to, to call back to nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only game, uh, like board or card game, I've played recently that I haven't already talked about. Um 2018 also brought out the first expansion for Civilization VI, yes. uh, Rise and Fall. Uh, my brother and I play it together a lot. It's fantastic. It I can't play Civ IV on my home computer anymore because of how good Civ VI is with this expansion. Interesting. And then, then the next one, uh, Gathering Storm, which is going to introduce like canals and natural disasters and mm-hmm. ways to tunnel through mountains. Mm-hmm. I, Civ VI is in a very good place right now. So I have to reserve judgment because as great as my Mac is, Civ Six is slow on it, and yeah, my my uh, protege Ethan is setting me up with his gaming rig, but we haven't had time mm-hmm. to finish do the finishing touches. So that's, that's a p- high powered PC. So I'll be able to re download it uh, via Steam and, and give it more fair. Um, I love Civ Five. Civ Six is a little cartoony for me, but again, if things move more quickly, maybe I'll be more into it. It's funny that you brought that up, man, because you know, like the they the fact that there are strategy games like that that do sell a ton it it does you know it makes me happy that there are smart people out there who want complicated games um and uh i 
I guess a, fi- a final question for you about D&D. Is it sort of uh, something... Uh, it, it's actually something that a lot of people could get into if they wanted to, right? I mean... Yeah. Because it combines like things like charades that people have done and board games, which people have done, even if they're not gamers, right? Like um, being creative, but you don't have to have all the spotlight on you if you don't want to, right? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, what's a, what's a way to get more people into it? Or <laughs> I guess Critical Role's doing it. Yeah, I, I haven't come up with an idea that's better than that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you show people having a ton of fun playing it and you package it in something that's very entertaining, people will be drawn to it themselves. Hmm. You know, and the guys I play with, the, the DM is extremely good, but he's not Matt Mercer, but he doesn't mm-hmm. have to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because nobody is. So I, I think that's the way you get more people involved is you show cool people playing it in a way that's entertaining sure. and they'll want to do it themselves sure a couple quick hits about critical role and we'll wrap up okay all right so you it sounds like you think in terms of pure brains marisha Murray is the smartest uh, there yeah i don't know who i think is the smartest i i think she is the one who is has the most organizational power within critical role oh okay um who is the- i think she's quite smart but yeah. i mean matt mercer created an entire sure. continent like a whole world so yeah i wasn't including matt mercer i was just to talk about the cast but um okay i'll be more specific who's the best strategic player of the game even if it comes at the cost uh, of that's a good question yeah uh and that marisha ray has played her character bow very well now f- monks don't have the same degree of resource management that some other characters do fucking monks uh, i'm just kidding <laughs> uh, but she she plays her character very well i sam regal plays his uh rogue character pretty well although again all he needs his rogue to do is check and disarm traps and shoot a crossbow and he's very good at shooting that crossbow sure. and occasionally he casts spells um including there's a spell in D called tasha's hideous laughter which kind of incapacitates a, a an opposing player uh, enemy for a while every time he does it he tells a bad somewhat fantasy themed joke uh <laughs> and it's really funny to watch the uh audience uh, to watch the other players react to it like one of them is why don't orcs eat court jesters because they taste funny <laughs> and he just does that over and over and over Brilliant. again yeah and what was funny is when deborah ann wall comes on she also plays a rogue with that spell and she does the same thing but her joke delivery is really different than his mm-hmm. uh in part because her character has a very different personality than his mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to see somebody else cast that spell mm-hmm. um who is the best pure actor when it comes to particularly dramatic and or comedic scenes uh best pure actor like like they make you know they come the closest to make you thinking they're putting on a performance and not just playing a game i guess i would probably say either laura bailey or liam o'brien yeah both of those characters Liam O'Brien does tons of voice work too, by the way. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's been doing it for a really long time. Yeah. That was going to be my guess between those two. Yeah. Caleb is a really dark character. Liam O'Brien has said he likes dark characters. He Mm -hmm. likes sad characters. So -hmm. there is just a lot of stuff going on with Caleb and he wears 
he keeps a lot of it hidden, but he also wears a lot of it on his sleeve. And that's hard to do when you're just sort of sitting in a chair. Uh, Laura Bailey's character, Jester, is very over the top, but there's a lot of depth underneath that as well. And when she gives and when she gives her character kind of moments to to let the the happy-go-luckiness fall away, it's really interesting. So I would say those two are the best pure actors. Who is uh, the, who's the, the most expendable character, if there is one? Doesn't well, mean they're bad, just expendable. Well, Ashley Johnson is only there about one every four episodes, yeah, and Yasha is only there. Yeah. Even when she's gone, a lot of times Yasha doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So her mm-hmm. not because they could should kill her or anything but because mm-hmm. she just she has been expended and it hasn't really hurt the show like uh-huh. so okay I, one more there's two different parts but you, this might be the same person okay. who was the best guest extended guest and Ooh. who if it's not the same person as the best guest who do you think over time would be the best addition of people who have guested on the show if that makes sense you like, mean who would make for the best conversion like, to a full-time player? I guess for best guests, they have to have at least been on two or three episodes. Best right. potential is maybe someone who just came on once or briefly, but you're like, oh, they could really hang out with this crew and be a permanent part of it or something. Um, if it's someone I even know. Sure. I mean, just purely in terms of, of what they bring to the table, I think Ashley Birch's character would make the best addition because the team doesn't have a fighter um i mean You're i guess just getting on my good side today aren't you man <laughs> maddie I mean, g I, love you buddy i mean i i guess yasha's no yasha's character is a barbarian which is a different class they don't have a true fighter on the team so yeah they could use a fighter but you don't need deborah ann walls rogue when you have sam regals you don't need somali montano's druid when you have talus and jaffe's second character caduceus who is also a druid um i and you don't even need another cleric which is what carrie payton's character shakasta is because you have uh well you have two clerics i'm sorry uh, caduceus is a cleric not a druid i they're very similar characters mm-hmm. um so in terms of my favorite guest probably carrie payton's shakasta this oh, this nice. really Cool. One, because Kari Payne is just so fucking cool. He's King Ezekiel from Walking Dead for people who don't know who that is. Uh, so I, I just like him as an actor, and he seems like a pretty cool dude. So I want to see as much of him as I can. Uh, in terms of who would make the best addition, the only one who's played anybody who would really help them, I think, is either Ashley Birch yeah. as a fighter named Keg or Mark Holmes as a sorcerer named Kaliana. But Mark Holmes was only on one episode and I really didn't get a sense of what Kaliana could do besides breathe fire. Mm -hmm. So, and Liam's character is a wizard who likes fire spells. So Mm -hmm. I, I kind of think, uh, Shikasta would be the, um, or I'm sorry, Shikasta is my favorite. And I think the fighter keg would be the best addition who would actually bring things. They party doesn't already have. Yeah, um, I think Ashley Birch would bring exactly the amount of seriousness that the, the rest of them bring. Uh, well, she's, she's pretty funny. I mean, she. Well, I was going to say she she could be very thing. funny and quirky. Oh, let me finish. She can be very funny and quirky, but there also would be times when she would be taking it 
too seriously perhaps <laughs> you know like she starts really i mean i'm saying that's what you want you want someone who kind of and i think i bet they're already friends or friendly but i think just the the her and bailey and and ray would just get along great i feel like they need a third i'm sure they're all already woman. very good friends with each other they i need mean a third woman on 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 stage it's still too many men well, when they have Ashley Johnson, it helps That's balance true. it out a little bit. I mean, a lot of the times it's two and four with Matt, you know, making the seventh. Yeah. When they have Ashley, it's three and four, and it's a little bit more balanced out. And it helps that um, Sam Regal's character is female. Mm-hmm. Was Ashley just on the one-shot episode, or, or as opposed to, or was it Birch. A, a series? Birch, yeah. She was in that one shot, and then she had four episodes, I think, on in, as part of campaign two. Okay, uh, four or five. I'll have to maybe check some of that out. I, I don't. I can't believe I, I didn't watch any minutes. Of it. When I heard it, it was self immolating or whatever, it made me so happy. I was like, yes, <laughs> actually, burst causing problems. Um, and uh, yeah, dude, and uh, just a, a creative group of personalities, if not r- racially. Um, the thing is, Geek and Sundry has people that work for them and you know they bring on who are more diverse uh it'd be nice to see that on some of their shows but to be honest yeah like you said it seems like that's a thing and then there's geek and sundry i don't know what's going on at geek and sundry that's not critical role so i'm not sure what that's saying yeah they've they've done it i mean yeah it is a mostly it's an all yeah it's an all white cast of the mains but some of the people they've had on have been different obviously you know somali montano is um filipino and thai descent and a lot of the you know some of the the side stuff kari payton is obviously african-american and some of the spin-off critical role stuff that they've done has had asian actors black actors you know it, it's whoever is around um, actually, actually but yeah i think is asian American is still, for the record what yeah Ashley Birch is is fully Asian American for the record. I, I'm she is being an idiot. Yeah, her mom's t- like totally a Thai Thai woman. She barely speaks English. She's adorable. She's on a, like a yeah. brief couple episodes of Hey Ash, what you playing? Um, so okay, man. So I'm yeah, asking this from Indian ethnicity. Okay. Yeah. Um, so. Um, for me and our listeners, if we can't watch live on Twitch or YouTube, where can, can we watch it, or is it gone after the initial release? Okay, so if you miss it on Thursday nights on YouTube, it goes up Monday after the following Monday afternoon. And if you can't catch it on Twitch, it's up within I think like eighteen hours. Uh, so if but you have to subscribe. They don't. They do rerun it sometimes, but. It's West Coast time, so a lot of times they're rerunning it at really weird hours if you live on the East Coast. So if you have to watch it, I would suggest paying for the Twitch subscription. I use my free Amazon Prime subscription to give it to them. It's worth Uh, it. Don't pay for Alpha, guys. Give them the money on Twitch. Trust me, they appreciate it. Well, I think they make money off Alpha. I'm pretty sure Alpha is a subsidiary thing of Geek & Sundry. I don't think it's a separate channel. I think it's just another website that airs their content yep this is a part of the industry bizzle actually has no knowledge of and so i won't even try and say i have no (laughs) clue um thank you so much matt this was great um i sort of tricked you into taking most of the responsibility so win one for me uh topics were great and um i think i I, I don't know. Are there any major ones we missed just to leave the, the people with? Uh, not to the, that we'll discuss, but like big, it's big, big D, I guess the state of DC in general. Um, 
we're always avoiding that topic. <laughs> yeah, I don't have anything really to say about the state of DC. I mean, we didn't talk about video games all that much, which yeah, I think you I wanted know. to talk about a little bit. I don't bit, really. But- I know. I, I, I prefer the stuff we did. So thank you for that, man. It was great to have you on, and it's been more than three years. So just thank you for that and everything, man. My pleasure. Happy New Year, everyone. All right, guys. That's Maddie G. Too young to be emeritus contributor to the Bizzlecast. Yeah, exactly. Thank you guys for a wonderful year. I know I dropped off my content precipitously about two months ago. Uh, I had some health issues. I had some work issues. And I just was getting burnt out and needed the break. But thrilled to be bringing you my commentaries and then special ones like this with Maddie G. Again, this is a favorite or most interesting nerdy things of 2018. Great. Great having Matt on, and we'll be talking to you guys soon. Have a wonderful New Year's, and for now, the Bizzlecast is out.